This podcast is made possible in part by patrons like you. Become a patron today at patreon.com slash binge movies. Transmitting from the last video store in the universe, it's Binge Movies, episode 122. This is the show that ranks and eliminates movies to determine which ones are worthy of preservation for all time, even beyond the end times. On this episode, we rank Tom Hanks' 90s. here with uh, someone who has gone through technological miscommunications, hell and high water, to deliver this episode. Uh, I am here with somebody who has come prepared, who has showed up on time, despite every roadblock I've thrown in her way to make that possible. I am here with the most popular uh, person on film Twitter, maybe. Uh, I'm here with Em from Verbal Diorama. How are you, Em? Hi, Jason. Um, I, I would never say I'm the most popular person on film Twitter, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, but yeah, it, uh, it, it's been, there's been a couple of roadblocks, like you say, for us, <laughs> for us to get here. Um, but as yeah. I said, before we started recording, mistakes happen. It is what it is. We're here now. And I'm really excited to be here to talk about Tom Hanks in the 90s. Well, you know, I'm always trying to come at things from a slightly different angle. And I thought, you know, if Elm is just someone who's known as being really supportive and uplifting towards other people, I'd really like to be her arch nemesis. So how can, what can I do to become her enemy? Uh, and it didn't work. Your kindness is like, like a Care Bears movie. Your care, kindness just poured into me and it melted my heart. And I was just like, oh, I see the light now. I'm born again. Well, if if I want to be known for anything in, you know, any remit of my life, I'd want to be known to be kind. Um, I did get things a little bit confused. We are going to be talking about the Muppets in an upcoming episode. And I thought for sure that Tom Hanks was a Muppet. Because when you look at most of his 80s work, um, he does appear to kind of be a character. He does appear to be mostly felt. I just think that he comes across as like genuinely the nicest person um and perhaps in that respect yes he is a a, a muppet um, although the, the word the word muppet it has a slightly different connotation here in the uk than maybe it does in the us <laughs> okay so if you call someone a muppet over yeah. here yeah. then you're generally calling them maybe a bit of an idiot a bit of a moron um i've heard gordon ramsay use it yeah i watched yes. the, uh, the uk yeah. version of kitchen nightmares with the good version u.s version yeah. is terrible and he would say oh come on muppets and i would just to me the connotation of course is you know, Kermit and Miss Piggy and Big Bird and all of these characters. And so I'm like, why is he calling these, these, <laughs> these poor cooks, these poor line cooks in some, you know, hotel somewhere, Muppets. But apparently it's a thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's basically, if you call someone a Muppet, then you think they're an idiot. 
Um, I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure Claire from W Rated has called me a Muppet before. I, I no, she's, I thought, she's so lovely. She would never say that. I thought I was. I thought she was being charming and was saying that I was like a a silly felt character. But now I realize what she was really saying. And now I've got a new arch nemesis. You're off the table because uh, you're full of love and sunshine. And apparently Claire, <laughs> who is full of KFC and chicken vindaloo, is now my new arch nemesis. So it's all right. No, no Claire's <laughs> the loveliest. I she love actually Claire. is. She's awesome. Yeah, she is awesome, yeah. She's fantastic. We love, she's a, a fan favorite. She, Her and uh, Megan Kearns put on probably the single greatest, well, I guess it's two people, so the best dual performance in a last movie standing we've ever had to the point where they broke the template and set a impossible standard to follow. Uh, so I pity the soul that that has to follow them from here to eternity because it was already a hard task wow. to do last movie standing and both of them were so good at it. I was like, I don't think, I don't know if this, these performances will ever be top. So, well, uh, I can tell you now, I am rubbish at debate. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I am literally the worst at debate. So, uh, yeah, I guarantee. So what, you're, what you're saying is you want to go up against Claire in last <laughs> movie standing. No, because I'm far too nice. And so I'll be like, Claire will argue her side and I'll be like, yeah, of course, Claire, no problem. You, It's yours. You take it. Because I like you, Claire. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's best just to stay out of her way. Just let her go. Let her Just let her be. I'm guessing just from the sound of your voice and from your personality and everything about you that we know that you're going to be a Tom Hanks fan. So yeah. I, I don't think I have to ask you about the personal history here. So let's just go right into our rankings. We're going to start with the very controversial, massive Hollywood flop, 1990s Joe versus the Volcano, critically derided, made no money, currently has a 65% on Rotten Tomatoes. You think this is inappropriate for the boat? When Tom Hanks dances his way into Meg Ryan's heart. Stop right there! I love you! It's an island of laughter. In an ocean of love. You want to marry her? Yeah. You want to marry him? Yes. You're married. Joe versus the Volcano. Rated PG. Starts Friday, March 9th at a theater near you. Joe versus the Volcano was directed and written by John Patrick Shanley. It is, of course, the triumphant return of Tom Hanks, last seen in Savior Private Ryan, to the controversy of binge lords everywhere. It's also the triumphant return of Meg Ryan, last seen in Sleepless in Seattle. It's the triumphant return of Lloyd Bridges, last seen in Hot Shots. It's the triumphant return of Dan Hedaya, last seen in Ransom. It's the triumphant return of Ozzie Davis, last seen in Dr. Doolittle. It is the triumphant return of Nathan Lane, last seen in The Birdcage. This film was released March 9th, 1990 in the United States. On a budget of $25 million, it only made $39.4 million. A terminal hypochondriac starts a journey towards a meaningful life before becoming a human sacrifice. Joe Banks is dying of brain cloud and is offered everything he wants by a billionaire businessman as long as he dives into a volcano and appeases a god. Yes, very good. Uh, this is The history behind this is interesting. Because, you know, I'm, I'm watching the movie and the, the, the director title comes up and I watch the movies first and I watch them in chronological order. And I don't, you know, some I'm a movie nerd. So a lot, I have a lot of like uh, just background information in my head because I've just been obsessing about movies my whole life. 
but but this one I, I didn't know too much about other than it was critically derided, and I've tried to watch it multiple times. I actually tried to watch it at the start of the pandemic, and it was so bleak and depressing at the beginning, I had to turn it off because I can't do this. But when the name John Patrick Shanley came up, I'm like, that name is vaguely familiar, but I don't know it. There's no IMDb trivia in my head about this guy. And come to find out he's a playwright, which makes sense if you watch this film because it feels at times very stagey. Uh, he's a screenwriter, obviously, and his credits are bizarre, M. This guy wrote Moonstruck, which won an Academy Award, I think, for Best Screenplay. Then later in the 90s, he would write Congo. Really? <laughs> yes. And then he wrote the play and the adaptation for Doubt. And I'm like, the, Moonstruck, the about- Congo, Doubt. <laughs> Is Doubt the one about Catholic priests? Yes. With like Meryl Streep and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Okay. What? They're very different. They're all so different, right? And then this movie is different than all of those. So you have Moonstruck, Congo, and Doubt as his three principal credits. And he's most famous, I guess, as a director for directing this huge flop. Uh, It's very uh, a strange mix of movies. But if you look at this movie, it is a strange mix. The the only thing I could liken it to is it's like a bastard adjacent cousin of the Coen brothers. Like there's a version of this movie where I'm like, this this is Coen adjacent. What what do you think about Joe versus the volcano? Have you ever seen it before? Are you like me? Are you coming to it with new eyes? Or what, what are your thoughts? So I had never seen this before. Okay, good, good. But I'd heard about it. Yeah. Mostly in the context of Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan movies. Yeah. Because I remember years ago there was, I was um, taking part in like a movie quiz. And this was one of the answers because it was something along the lines of um, Sleepless in Seattle and, um, oh God, the, Oh, it's just gone out of my head and we're covering it later. You've got mail. <laughs> You've got mail. That's the yeah. one. You know, when your mind just goes completely blank. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it was basically those two. And then it was what was the other uh, Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan romantic comedy? And obviously the answer was Joe versus the volcano. I didn't uh-huh. know it at the time. Right. Um, and so, yeah, but I've never felt compelled to watch it in a sense of it's not, it's not really readily available on streaming, it's not like on Netflix here or anything like that. You you basically have to rent it. Yeah. Um, so it's it's never it's never felt really very accessible. It's not very popular. Um, yeah. Like I said, pe- people don't know about it. It's, it's almost forgotten to time. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yep. But I was really pleasantly surprised by this movie. Um, for for many reasons, I think because it was nothing like I expected. I think I expected a. Uh, you've got male sleepless in Seattle clone, mm. and it's so different. Like yes. you say, it's, it's eclectic. It's yeah. it's weird, you know. It's, it's weird. It's a little bit absurd, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, because it's like quirky and it's melancholy, and it's it's like I feel like it's highly ambitious. Like it really felt ambitious for its time, but I don't yeah. think people really appreciated that ambition. If you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, um, I know exactly what you mean. But yeah, it feels like a, you know, a highly ambitious fantasy romance. Really. Well, yeah, it's 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 this is the the start of the Hanks Ryan cinematic universe, which I guess is yeah. only three movies. I think they need to do another one now that they're older. I think that we I need another one. I think that would be one. amazing. 
amazing. I think it'd be yes. amazing. Yeah. Uh, I love, especially in the first quarter of the movie, the cinematography of the film, the, the mm. widescreen aspect ratio, the texture, the lighting, the production design. I mean, it's good throughout the film, but the first 20 minutes or so, when he's at his life <laughs> with like yes. the, with like the rectal probe and Vaseline factory or petroleum jelly factory, which is just enough of it's, it, it's, it's like, um, it's really, if you've never seen the movie, I don't want to spoil it too much. Cause I know there's going to be a lot of people listening who haven't seen it or haven't seen it in years. Maybe you've never even heard of it or only know it by bad reputation, but it really is. It's like, it's, it's a, melancholy, absurdist, rom-com, philosophical, existential movie that has, like, drippings of Terry Gilliam and then, like, a little bit of, like, the Coen brothers. And it's, I would put it more in, like, Hudsucker proxy territory. But there's even elements of it, especially towards the back end of the movie, that are like, oh, this is almost like, oh, brother, we're out thou, where it becomes mythic. It becomes, like, a fable. It becomes, like, a... um fairy tale in a weird way. And a movie yes. does open and close that way, but it's so many different things within its runtime. <laughs> and tonally, I mean, it is, it's consistent. So I don't want to make it seem like it's sloppy, but it is, it's depressing. <laughs> it is yeah. absurdist comedy, which is probably my favorite type of humor. Uh, listeners of the show will get that, understand that readily. Um, if this shows anything, it's absurd. And so it's absurdist humor. And, but it is also kind of deeply thoughtful about life and about yes. wasting your life in capitalism, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> working for the man and like losing touch with like real life. And um, I was so worried em, that when they got to this Island, it was going to be filled with like racist caricatures of, you know, uh, uh, Polynesian people and so forth. Uh, and instead they make up a whole new civilization that is so ludicrous. This, this people group of, of, of the most like random like Welsh Scotsman's and yeah. Spaniards so just, or something. It's like, what yeah, the push hell? all of these like nationalities together yeah. and say that this is the tribe of people that live on this island. <laughs> that, and the fact that they all love orange, orange soda as well. Orange soda. <laughs> it's, it's the weirdest thing. And yet it works. Really it so works. Yeah. it's like Abe Vigoda and you're like, okay, whatever. And no, nothing, no character is like you've seen any other character in any movie. And the proof of that is Meg Ryan. Yes. Meg Ryan looks and behaves so different in each of these roles. And it's different than I've ever seen her before. I've seen all, probably all of her work. And she is just a completely, she's doing something, doing something very, very different. And I think that, um, I, you know, the DD character in particular who works in the office, she looks like a different person. I was like, yes, is that? Yes. I was like, I know it's Meg Ryan, but is it Meg Ryan? All they did was darken her hair and put brown contacts in, and she just looks and behaves so different. And see, I wondered if she had like a prosthetic nose because for a long time I thought it looks like Meg Ryan, but her nose didn't look. Like that Meg could Ryan's be. nose. That could and be. And I too. wondered if it was like a slightly larger prosthetic. Could or be. something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, it just, uh, and I think as well with someone like Meg Ryan, you associate her with 
the Sleepless in Seattle and, you know, the yeah. romantic comedy, the sweet girl next door kind of person. Yes. Um, and I was actually really surprised by her because she obviously plays three roles in this yeah. movie. Yeah. And they're so distinctly different. I mean, yes. there is a very kind of more Meg Ryan role in this movie that she plays towards the end. Yeah. But the other two characters, um, Dee Dee and... Um, Angelica. Angelica. Sorry, I was going to say Anastasia, but it didn't feel right in my head. Angelica. Yeah. Um, gibbet. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, she really impressed me, yes. actually, with yes. the range that she could produce three very dif- different characters, three very distinct characters. Hi. Hi. Are you Joe Banks? Yeah. Who are you? I'm the daughter of the guy who hired you, Angelica Graynamore. Oh, it's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Daddy told me to tell you that I don't know what he hired you for and not to tell me, that I'm totally untrustworthy. I'm a flibber to gibbet. Come on, let's get out of here. That are clearly her, but you would never say that, oh, they're typical Meg Ryan roles, apart from maybe the the final one that she plays. Yeah, Um, and and even that one doesn't start off the typical Meg Ryan. She kind of morphs. Yeah. Into yeah. more typical Meg Ryan, but yeah, th- this these are these are completely different than you've ever seen her before. I thought her the Angelica role. First of all, I thought she looked just like Nicole Kidman, young yes. Nicole Kidman. I was like, oh, I thought that too. And I thought in both instances, this woman who is just like a knockout and with the dark hair and the brown eyes, then the red hair and the green eyes. I'm like. This woman is like I've never been on the Meg Ryan train as far as like oh wow what a what a you know beautiful woman or whatever I think she's funny and all this sort of stuff but I never really but I was like and I don't know what that says about me but I was just sort of like this woman could do anything you could make her up at this point in her life she could be made up to look like anybody could do anything performance wise she can deliver basically Angelica's almost like a Saturday Night Live character you know but she's the whole thing of like, <laughs> like, it's a beautiful city, but it's terrible. But it's a beautiful city. It's a oh, it's a great town, and just like just the way she talks and behaves, and then it's just everything about it is like wow. What is this? So different, and she looks so different, and you're like, yeah. is this Nicole Kidman? What am I watching? It's just <laughs> it's great. It's great stuff to the point where I think she really outshines Tom Hanks in this movie. A little uh, bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Now, I do have a question for you. Okay. Because I have a disagreement in my household. Uh, My significant other believes with the Dee Dee character, they go on this date. There's obviously attraction between them, or there was, and he's got the brain cloud, so he doesn't care anymore. Let's go on a date, quit my job, all this sort of stuff. Before they uh, 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 copulate, she... (laughs) Tells her, I've got a brain cloud. I only got like three months to live. I'm dying. And she's like, I can't emotionally handle that. And she leaves. Now, my significant other says that he should have uh, bedded her first and then told her later if, if it developed into an actual relationship. I say, tell her up front because, it, because you don't want something blossoming into a, a, a relationship on false pretenses. You know, if it gets to that point, you don't want to be like, oh, and by the way, I'll be dead in three months. Yeah. <laughs> Death is something you kind of need to lead with. What say you, Em? So I, I understand both points of view. 
Yeah. But I think I would be in agreement with you in that you'd be honest and upfront and you yeah. say, look, I've got three months left to live. You're still interested in some. It's not going to really go anywhere, yeah. but, you know, let's have, let's have fun while we can. We're in, a, we're, we're in for a good time, not a long time. Exactly. You know, yeah. at the end of the day, obviously brain cloud, as we know, is a very serious condition. And anyone Absolutely. with brain cloud, you have my utmost sympathies if you do have brain yeah. cloud. But I, I sort of, I feel like no one knows what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, you could get run over by a bus tomorrow. Yeah. So why not live your life for today? Surely that's the whole point of the movie anyway, yes, is right. living your life for today. So, and obviously... Um, Joe is more than willing to do that. That's kind of what he decides he wants to do when he leaves the company. And Dee Dee is obviously not willing to do that. And that's why she stays yeah. at the company because she is not willing to kind of take that leap. So, um, so yeah, I, I would, I would actually be in agreement with you and not with your partner on that one. Yeah. I think you got to be upfront and you know, here's the thing. A lot of people don't know this about me, but I've had brain cloud for 25 years now. It's been in remission. It, it actually started as an offshoot of my McGregor syndrome. And uh, my partner, I was up front with them that I have McGregor's and I am a sufferer of brain cloud. And so I thought it was very hypocritical of them to say, well, he shouldn't have said anything to her because I led with that. I led with that. I said, look, honey, <laughs> brain cloud. I got it. Um, not to bring it down too much, but let's move on to Angelica's suicide. Is this, is this, this movie is again, right, he has Dee Dee, and she, like you said, she's not willing to move on or be spontaneous or live in the moment, uh, probably because she doesn't think she's dying. And then we have Angelica, who says, the daddy said that you couldn't tell me anything because I'm a fiberty gibbet. <laughs> and then, uh, but then she tries to take her own life, uh, or she's tried repeatedly, and that becomes, you know, she gets kind of left behind from it and then the meets her half sister who is Patricia and she's got her own bitterness and her own issues with her dad and and all this sort of stuff and the life that she wants and so each of these characters that Ryan is playing and of course Hanks's character who is a hypochondriac who only finds out he's terminally ill because he is so incessant that they do every available test on him so they end up finding a um unfindable disease in his brain. What do you think the movie's trying to communicate to us about being stuck as opposed to being in the moment, as opposed to bitterness? You know, all these characters all have issues. What, what, what's the, what's the theme here? What are we working on? Well, I mean, I think the overall kind of, the, the movie is trying to tell us that you've only got one life to live. Yeah. basically, and that you have to live that life in the best possible way that you can. Um, I mean, I certainly think it, it, it maybe gets a little bit mixed sometimes because it, it um, Joe, as a character, he obviously finds out he has brain cloud. Um, and because of his brain cloud, he is offered this opportunity to basically have whatever he wants. You know, he can have his pick of credit cards from this... Yeah. billionaire businessman who wants this particular mineral but it's only on this one island um but you know it's it's you know contrivance after contrivance yeah. in a way to kind <laughs> yeah. of get to this to get to this point um but i i think i think this movie 
is a little bit flippant about death in a way because yeah. I think it has to be because this is a, a main character who's going to throw himself into a volcano. Yes. <laughs> um, without any kind of real care or consideration for, you know, him and him living out the rest of his life. Because let's be honest, even if you've got three months to live, you still deserve to live that life. Yeah. Um, and I mean, we don't see like if he has any family or anything like that, but it's, it's kind of the movie kind of tells us that he doesn't mm -hmm. have any family, that he's got no one. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I, I feel like this movie, as much as I enjoyed it, I feel like it's a little bit flippant about life. That you know, if you if you feel like you've got no reason to live, then you've got no reason to live. But that's not true. Mm. If you know what I mean, I feel yeah. like everyone has a reason to kind of be here. Um, and but I also think this is a movie that doesn't really dwell too much on it. Um, it, it, it almost, um, I'm trying to think of the, the right word. It almost like tries to, to tempt you a little bit with death, which sounds weird now, actually, that I'm saying it because you have to be tempted by death. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it, I feel like it's, I understand maybe why this movie didn't resonate with audiences. Yes. Back then. Yeah. Um, because it's not a straightforward romantic comedy. Well, um, I, I think most movies, right, would try to get to the gimmick of it as quickly as possible. They, they would try to get him on the island and a bunch of wacky stuff is going to happen. He meets a bunch of wacky people and he's going to throw himself in this volcano, but all this crazy stuff happens. And that actually, for a movie that is called Joe versus the Volcano, that, which is about a guy... Who's going to throw himself into a volcano to appease a, a pagan god? The movie is very little about that island, and it's very little about that volcano. Mm -hmm. It's about the journey as much as it is, if not more, about the destination. To use that cliche, because this movie strolls and at times crawls to each kind of consequential moment or plot beat. And I think that yeah. may be some of the problem: is that it is a heavy movie at times it yeah, is it is it's definitely a movie made by somebody who has suffered from depress long-term depressive episodes i would guess uh and yeah. it really dwells in that it really is from the perspective of a depressive person um it doesn't stay there there is an arc and it does get to the point of hope and and to a point of not being depressed uh but it stays there for a while and I think that may be a problem for a lot of people because, but I think the pacing is intentional because I think it's, I think this movie very accurately communicates as absurd and silly as it is, not so much what it is, but what it feels like to be in a long-term rut of depression. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can kind of see that, that this, this is a movie that, does deal with these sorts of topics and and obviously depression is something you don't just snap out of it's not something yeah. that you can just one day wake up and go oh i'm not depressed anymore yippee right. you know right. and, and and it kind of feels a little bit like that so I, I do agree with what you're saying um the other thing i just quickly wanted to mention if i may um when i mentioned earlier about, about it being flippant with death it an idea just kind of popped into my head about the the boat and um so obviously they they travel 
yes. on Patricia's <laughs> boat. Yes. Which is not her boat, it's her father's boat. Yeah. But she's told, if you do this thing for me, if you deliver this man to this island, you can have the boat. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, she's, as, we, as we've already said, she's got massive daddy issues. So she just wants this boat. And then they end up in a storm and the boat basically rips in two and mm-hmm. goes under. It sinks. But we don't really hear, well, because they're dead, we don't hear from them. But the crew of the boat just basically die straight away. Like we never, oh, yeah. <laughs> never see them again. Um, and obviously I know they're, you know, very tertiary characters. You know, we don't really kind of get to know them or anything mm-hmm. like that. But it's just kind of, it's like... It feels like this is a movie where it starts off and you have this very intentional claustrophobic, you know, the use of this fluorescent lighting, which is, it's jarring. It's intentionally jarring and claustrophobic and you don't want to be there as much as Joe doesn't (laughs) want to be there. But I really like that and I like the art direction and I like the fact that everything in Joe's life is so angular and artificial Yeah, because that, helps the person watching understand why maybe he's not happy. I loved the production design that shows that ugly, squat, enormous factory building. Yeah, I, I, you know, it was designed by the same man who did uh, Beetlejuice. And what I like about the film is it's not shot in the same realistic humdrum world of every other movie. Both the dialogue and the look of the movie and the performances by Hanks and Ryan are on a fantasy level that's lots of fun. I just think he's like a beat, more than a beat late, a few minutes late. So I started doing a countdown. Let's get him going. Then when he gets to meet, he meets an interesting character and the film starts rolling along the Ossie Davis character then it comes to a halt when he meets the, the daughter you know which one she I was mean. cute the middle daughter the businessman's uh, the uh, business I, type I, person yeah I, I didn't Meg Ryan was good in all three roles it was neat the way she showed the various versions of the ideal woman I only in like, life. I only like the last one well uh, um, and maybe why he would want to go on an adventure like this um, and about how the the lighting and the colors change kind of as the movie progresses um, so it feels like it's it's almost um, I don't this is going to sound really weird because this is basically what movies are, but it feels like almost a collection of individual scenes. Yeah. That have basically been smushed together and, <laughs> and basically, oh, this is the movie. This is Joe versus the volcano. It's this scene, this scene, this scene, and this scene, and let's just put it all together. And I realise that is basically movie making in a <laughs> nutshell. But I'm hoping that you'll understand what I mean. In that yeah, it's a series of, of vignettes. Yes, yeah. that yes. feel very different from each yeah. other with different characters and almost a little bit like a play, maybe. You know, when yes. you've got a play and yeah. you have um, one scene in a play and you might have the same people in that play as, you know, certain characters and then you know, you'll have an intermission and the next time they'll, they'll be playing different characters. It yeah. feels a little bit like that. I think so. I think that, like I said at the beginning, exactly. I think it's stagey because it's a playwright who wrote it. So it does feel yeah. like a play. It does feel like kind of an absurdist play of a series of vignettes that are connected by a through line. It's an odyssey. It's like a pilgrim's progress or Homer or the odyssey or something. It's, it, feels that way it feels like a, a and it eventually gets to the point where we spend so much time on the water it definitely feels like the odyssey this is this guy who's encountering all these different stuff and there is an overarching idea of he's got to get to the volcano and he's going to die and so he's going to throw himself in this volcano and but all this other stuff 
happens along the way. And the stuff that happens along the way is sometimes way more important to the story than the actual volcano. And I think that that could be, like I said, I think that could be like a turnoff for people. Like you're saying is like, cause it is a series of vignettes and it's, it's almost like the movie kind of loses its own plot. It just kind of wanders through the yeah. world. Yeah. And, <laughs> but it's still quite charming, you know? Yeah. It, would you classify this as like magical realism or is it something else? You know, like a big fish or a, a bird man or a, what what genre or subgenre or whatever or literary genre would you put on this, if you can think of one? I mean, is I it, think magical realism is probably a really good way to describe it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I kind of, when I was thinking of categorising, I, I categorised it as like a fantasy romance, but I don't think... I don't think that quite works, really, to say it's a fantasy romance because the romance is so fleeting. There's not really <laughs> much romance, let's be honest. It's, yeah. they, they meet, they almost drown, and then all of a sudden they love each other. And that's yeah. basically it. Yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, but it, and it has this kind of element of, of magic, but it also has the, this element of reality. Like you say, when we're talking about yeah. serious topics like depression, um, and, um, you know, but it has this absurdity, like, like we, we, use, we keep using the word absurd, but it genuinely yeah. is a little bit absurd. Um, but it also has this sort of essence of joy that a person yeah. finding what they thought was outside of the realm of their possibility, what happens when they find that joy? Yeah. And that's quite nice. I, yeah. I quite like that. But, but then... It does something ridiculous, like, um, well, I, I, you mentioned you don't want to go into spoilers, so I feel like maybe we shouldn't spoil the end, but the, the ending of this movie is... Yes, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. like crazy, like, what? <laughs> what, yeah. what just happened? <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, I'd be remiss to say one of my favorite standouts of the movie uh, is Ozzie Davis, who's very oh, briefly yes. in the movie. But I the love few Marshall. Yeah, the few scenes that he has with Hanks where he's the limo driver and he stops the car and he's like, wait, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's like, I can't tell you who you are. That's not my job. I just drive the car. I can't tell you who you are. You have to tell me who you are. Is so, first of all, it's Ozzy Davis. So there's, there's this gravitas to which he delivers everything as being a stage actor and just a great actor. Um. But the way, like, th that to me is almost like the heart of the movie is, mm -hmm. you know, you have to know, you have to decide for yourself who you are, what your life is. You know, it's that know thyself. You have to know who you are and build your life inward to outward, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. And Joe is this guy who has been letting the outside world, letting his outside circumstance define who he is and therefore define his life. And he's still doing that when he comes into this wealth, at least temporarily, where he's trying to, again, define himself by all these external things. And Ozzie Davis is like the, the voice of wisdom in the movie. And is like, you can't do that. You absolutely can't do that. And it's not my job. It's not anybody else's job to tell you who you are. But it's all done in this very sort of, uh, like like to use your term flippant sort of way almost that you don't really realize like just really how philosophical their conversation is 
because it just comes off as sort of light comedic dialogue, but it's like, this movie is like deeply philosophical. It's, yeah. it's <laughs> you know, and we do get a few instances of that where it brings in the mythical, you know, like the green light and green smoke of the sea, which is comes from old, um, you know, sea fables and stuff like that. And then the stuff with the moon and the sky and, you know, it, it gets into this place where like, it is more kind of fantastical, um, even at times like phantasmagoric in some ways. And you're like, what is going on? <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's a journey. The movie itself yeah. is tonally and emotionally this journey. Um, and every once in a while, you know, we like to look back at what the real critics had to say about movies. Not since Howard the Duck has there been a big budget comedy with feet as flat as those of Joe versus the Volcano. Many gifted people contributed to it, but there's no disbelieving the grim evidence on the screen. Vincent Canby, New York Times. Well, first of all, <laughs> I have a lot of love for Howard the Duck. Um, I this is never not say... a Howard the Duck, though. <laughs> no, I... but I, I would never say Howard the Duck is the greatest movie ever made. Yes, it it right. certainly has its charm yeah. uh, in, you know, maybe. Uh, but... I feel like that is unnecessarily harsh, perhaps. Uh, I realise that a film critic is there to critique. You yeah. know, that is their job. Um, but sometimes I feel like some critics go out of their way to bash certain yeah. films. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't agree with, with that at all. I, I feel like there's, there's so many layers of complexity to this film. I mean, yeah. It's it's so different. I I can't think off the top of my head of of anything like it. Um, and and maybe that's its problem because it doesn't follow the standard template of what we expect, especially of a Tom Hanks Meg Ryan movie. You know, if you're a fan of Sleepless in Seattle or you've got mail and you think, oh, we'll watch their, the first one that they did together. That'll be nice. It's nothing, nothing like any of those. So I'm, um, I'm, honestly, I'm almost baffled by the the reviews of this, the contemporary reviews in 1990 of this movie. Because if you are a film critic, especially if you're a Vincent Canby of the New York Times, you are seeing in the late 80s, early 90s, really, let's just say late 80s, because this is so early into the 90s, you have sat through so many formulaic bad comedies of the 80s, so many pubescent sex comedies that are that are z-grade low budget fare there was like six of them coming out every month you are sitting through you know 55 different police academies you're sitting through all of these god-awful dog shit comedies that were formulaic and unfunny and insulting and lowbrow and mean and racist and homophobic and all this sort of stuff and no wit, no intelligence. And then you have this movie that is literary in its scope and its dialogue at times, which is bizarre in its characterization, but it, the movie always feels like it's in control of what it's doing. So even when it is flipping about death, like the crew dying, it knows it's flipping about their death. And it's almost like a commentary about like, look how flippant we are about these nobody's dying, right? Like, cause it's, there's commentary about wealth and excess and all this sort of stuff, greed, and it's all in here. You would think as a well-read, well-rounded scholar 
film critic who is looking for, you know, high-minded entertainment, comedy of ideas, that at the very least you'd be like, I didn't think it was funny or I didn't think it was paced well, but I appreciate the creativity and the uniqueness of the film. I appreciate that it's not formulaic. There was only one person that I could find from that era who was an immediate defender of it, and that is the late, great Roger Ebert. And here's what he had to say. New and fresh and not shy of taking chances, the film achieves a kind of magnificent goofiness. Hanks and Ryan are the right actors to inhabit it because you never catch them going for a gag that isn't there. They inhabit the logic of this bizarre world and play by its rules. And I think he got it. I think sometimes Ebert missed it, as we all do. But I think he understood what the movie was, and he, yeah. he appreciated it to the point that he originally gave it M three and a half stars out of four. And That's a really he, good score for Roger Ebert. <laughs> It's a very good score, but wait, <laughs> later he showed it at Ebert Fest in like, I think around 2002. And after he was done, he wrote, talked about it again. He's like, I, you know, he said, after watching it again for the first time in many years, I don't know why I gave it three and a half stars. Um, I should have given it four. Wow. And then he, he ended up updating his review and he, he gave it a four out of four stars. I can't quite go that high. But I'm, I was so pleasantly surprised. I knew this movie by reputation. I turned it on. I was like, and I had started it before, again, pre, early pandemic. And I didn't make it past 10 minutes. And the movie was still where I left it. <laughs> and so I started it from the beginning. And I would say that this movie, if you are going through a depressive time or the world is in some kind of upheaval and calamity, which it seems like it's going to always be from here on out, that maybe you wouldn't be sensitive about watching it if you're in certain moods. But if you're in the right frame of mind, and if you can get through the beginning, and if you can accept this movie for what it is, I think this is actually a great underseen, underappreciated gem of a film. And for that reason, it's going to be my number two for the week. It was almost my number one. It was so close really? to being my best of the week. I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. I, I love this movie. I think it's fantastic. Wow. Okay. Uh, so, so now I feel kind of bad. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Vincent Canby. Okay. What do you got to say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's going to be my name from now on, isn't it? Uh, might as well just change it. It's the Vincent Canby podcast. Yeah, well, yeah. it starts with a V, so there you know, you go. I'm always there already. Um, so I basically thought about this when i was when i was putting the scores together for for all of the movies that we're talking about i basically scored them as a how i felt about each one individually as part of a group and that'll make a bit more sense when i think when we get to you've got mail because i really enjoyed this movie like genuinely yeah. thought it was really really fun it wasn't what I thought it was going to be at all, but I like that. I like that it had ambition. Yeah. I like it for its quirkiness. I like for even for its melancholy and its complete absurdity. Um, I I feel like it is the sort of movie, like you've just said, you have to be in the right frame of mind. Yeah. I think to watch it, um, and also I feel like it might not be as um, as accessible maybe as as a because it's not really 
has comedy elements. It has fantasy elements. It has um, romantic elements. I mean, personally, you mentioned Ossie Davis. I I kind of bought his relationship with Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks' character, a little bit more than I did... With with Meg Ryan in a way because I <laughs> I love their partnership. Yeah, you know when they were shopping together and then Joe buys him a tux. Yeah, and he invites him round for dinner and he's like I've got a family and I just my heart broke for Joe yeah. at that point yeah. because I was like he found like a friend. Yeah, and in Marshall and yeah I really love their partnership. I know it wasn't on screen for very long but I really love that. Mm. Um, I feel like. This is a movie that isn't very well known, but I certainly think it deserves to be more yeah. well known than it actually is. I wonder, and I wanted your opinion actually on this. Do you feel like this is a cult classic? I don't know that it, I think, you know, I think it's, some people would say it is. I don't think it's a cult classic enough. I think it deserves to be, you know, it's a movie that was not successful in its day. And it has certainly found an audience over time but I think it needs to be elevated and I think there needs to be a larger audience for this movie. The difficulty, like you said, is that it's not readily accessible. I mean, there are times where you can, you know, in the States at the very least, you can rent it online or whatever. Um, There are times where it's not even available for rent, where it's just unavailable because I was actually going to cover this movie like a year ago. It was going to be in a different slate of films and it wasn't available. I, we, you couldn't access it legally. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, I don't know. I'm going to have to wait until <laughs> it's available to cover it. And now here we are. And so I'm glad that we did. So if you see it in the wild, if you see a physical copy of it, I'm not even sure if it was ever put on Blu-ray. I don't know. But I'd snag one, you know, get a DVD of it if you can or whatever it's at in physical media. Because it's so, it deserves to be a cult classic. And it yeah. should be appreciative if for nothing else that I think it is successful at what it wants to be. And what it wants to be is something wholly unique from anything that I've ever seen. Uh, that I, I can kind of say, well, it's sort of like this. And it's kind of like that. And it's a little like this. But it's also none of those things. It's its own original thing. And so, yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't, it's not accessible probably as, as the other movies on this list are, but I appreciate it for that. Like every once in a while, give me something that's not quite accessible. Give me something where I've got to bend and shift around the movie uh, a little bit. It, you know, not, not every movie needs to meet me right where I'm at, you know? So I love it for that. I love it for its inscrutability. <laughs> Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. And the reason I wanted to ask you what you thought about whether it was a cult classic is I feel like this is a sort of movie that, like you've just said, I think it deserves to be a cult classic. Yeah. I feel like there are a lot of movies that don't quite get what they deserve at the point of release for whatever reason. Yeah. And over time, they find an audience. Um, and it's happened to so many amazing movies over the years. And I feel like... I feel like this is ripe and this is prime for that cult classic status, but I think it's hampered by the fact that, like you've said, I mean, I, I assumed it was available in the States, um, you know, concurrently. Um, it, I've never really seen it here before. It just so happened that I could rent it on Amazon Prime. Yeah, um, that's how I had to watch it too. But I've never seen it on DVD. I assume it is available on DVD, um, but... 
Yeah, it, it feels like it feels like it's almost been hidden away. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's like being thrown in a cupboard under the stairs, uh, you know, as far as Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan are concerned. It's, it's like, oh, Harry, we don't talk about that. This is the, the Bruno Potter. of the family. <laughs> well, I was going to use a more, uh, a more modern reference and go for Bruno. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it, is, it is also the Harry Potter of the family. Uh, you, we don't talk about it. And, and maybe we should actually talk about it. And maybe people should actually go out of their way to, to watch this because it is so different and it is ambitious. Um, and honestly, I, I thought it was quite charming. Yeah. Um, and I really do think it deserves to be more well-known than it actually is. But as far as scores go, uh, I gave it 6.5 only because I, oh. feel like I, I really enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. Don't get me wrong. I did really enjoy it. Yeah. And maybe on a second watch, then maybe I would enjoy it a little bit more, perhaps. Yeah. Maybe it's one of those films that maybe grows on you. Because I assume you'd seen this before. No, never seen it. You hadn't? Oh, no. okay. Apologies. I thought you had seen this before. I started um, it, like I said, I started it pre during uh, the early days of the pandemic. But I... Oh, of I course. Could, Sorry. It, <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't get through it yeah. because it was so okay. depressing. Yeah. <laughs> So I Sorry, stopped it after that's about clearly 10 just minutes. me not paying attention. I do apologise. Um, I do listen. I promise. Yeah. <laughs> I just get so starstruck when I come on binge movies. Oh, I'm just yeah. like, so starstruck you. in your presence that I just forget everything you say, and, yeah. and all, I'm just I'm just so honoured to be here. Yeah. Um, it's it's but, the voice; it has an effect it, on people. Well, it is. You've got a lovely voice. Yeah, thank um, you. But <laughs> I I do really feel like, and I can understand at the start of the. Um, you yeah. know, the pandemic and everything, why maybe this isn't, isn't the sort of movie you would want to watch. <laughs> but I thought to myself, it. I had to basically compare it a little bit to You've Got Mail. Mm. So the score is basically reflective of the way I feel about this compared to You've Got Mail. Um, so Because I felt, I felt like that was the fairest thing to do. But yeah. that's not me saying that I think it's awful. I just Because it's so different. It's very difficult to recommend it. Yes. Because it depends on the person. It depends on what their stage of their life they're in. What are they going through? But otherwise, if you, yeah, I, I would absolutely recommend people watch this, but only some people, if well, you know what yeah, I mean. I, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Since we've sat here, I have bought it on Blu-ray. Really? <laughs> for seventeen ninety nine. Wow. And uh, it is available at least in our region here in the United States, North America, the North American region. I don't know because uh, I'm looking at U.S. Uh, Amazon. You can get it. It was released June 20th, 2017 on Blu-ray. Again, at least in this region. Um, it's $17.99 as we record this. It's 10 bucks on DVD and it's 15 bucks on VHS tape if you want it. And wow. it has a <laughs> 5.9 out of 10 on IMDb which is not a great score, but it is fairly close to M score. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, are you making me feel bad now? <laughs> but on Amazon, and I know most of these are bot reviews, but on Amazon, it has a four and a half out of five stars. <laughs> okay. Okay, now so, I feel like no, I am wait. the Vincent Camby of this podcast, <laughs> no, and that is going to be my name out forever. Of, that is out of 3,499 wow. ratings. Oh, now I feel really stingy. <laughs> Which is so unusual for you. I know. I know. Well, that's, oh. that's, see, that's the thing. That's the task of what we're doing here 
is we're not just talking about these movies in isolation. We're t- we're ranking them, so we have well, this to sort is the of thing. yeah. So that's the, we're contextualizing them amongst the slate of films that we're talking about every week. So that that's that is the twist of binge movies, and you've just encountered it. So this is what where did you rank this one? Where is it in your your five? Oh. Uh, sorry, let me just scroll down because <laughs> it's at the bottom. One second. It's at the uh, bottom. Oh no! <laughs> no, 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 no! I mean, it's at the bottom of oh, see, all of my pages of, of notes. So, so out of the the five movies, I, yeah. I ranked this four. Out oh of five. my! But there's there's so many great movies in this list. Well, you there's know? a not, there's a not great movie on this list, and I hope. Well, that yes, we agree there is a, a very it. not great movie. So let's 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 move forward. Another 1999 flop bomb disaster, critically panned. This one only has a 16 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It is the bonfire of the vanities. Is this going to be a cult classic? Did the did the audiences and critics miss it at the time? We're about to find out. On Wall Street, he's master of the universe. He's a down and out reporter. One night, with the wrong girl, he took a wrong turn. And since then, nothing's gone right. I'm going to jail, aren't I? Now, one man's misfortune is causing another man's fame. Tom Hanks, Bruce Willis, Melanie Griffith. Just watch the sparks fly. The Bonfire of the Vanities, rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. The Bonfire of the Vanities was directed by Brian De Palma. It was the screenplay by Michael Christopher. It is based on The Bonfire of the Vanities by Tom Wolfe. Kind of. It is the triumphal return of Bruce Willis, lasting the sixth sense. Triumphal return of Morgan Freeman, lasting in Deep Impact. It is the triumphant return of Kurt Fuller, lasting in Miracle Mile. It is the triumphant return of Mary Alice, lasting in Matrix Revolutions. And it is the triumphant return of Kevin! This film was released December 21st, 1990, on a budget of $47 million. It made $15.6 million. <laughs> All Lives Matter, the movie. Yeah. <laughs> that is, that is, yes. <laughs> Basically, yes, what, what this is. <laughs> All right, so this began as, before it was a novel, it was a serialized series of essays that came out through Rolling Stone magazine that Tom Wolfe was working on. Uh, It was supposed to be, at that time, a modern satire of greed and racial tensions within 80s, yuppie, Wall Street, New York kind of a world. Um, Every single character in this movie is miscast Uh, from what they were supposed to be in the novel and having no knowledge of the novel, really very little. I am even watching it on the screen. I did no, again, no research beforehand, just watch the movie. And I'm like, everybody is wrong. Everybody is wrong for every role that they're in. Uh, And then, and then, yeah. And then come to find out that, you know, Tom Wolf took, you know, $750,000 check and then they pretty much rewrote the book. They totally missed the point of the book. The book was long seen as like the definitive account of the definitive satire of the 80s as it came out right towards the end of the decade, at least of you know New York culture. 
and uh, you know the Reagan era, and it was considered unfilmable because it was this sort of long, very complicated, meandering story that had very complicated, unlikable, unsympathetic characters, and it was it was very a very cynical satire of media and culture and race and all this sort of stuff. It was also accused of being racist at the time because of its depiction and of uh, people of color. And they thought this is an unfilmable movie because it's it it a movie is not going to be able to capture in two hours the subtlety of this 600-page novel. It was also one of the best sellers of the decade, and so they wanted to cash in on its popularity. The the Bruce Willis character was originally supposed to be is in the book is this very sort of uh, high-minded British like piece of shit sort of a guy who's the, so the whole perspective is coming from this sort of British journalist. Who's also just like a drunkard and awful person. Anybody yet, because he's an outsider, he's reported on these ideas, you know, and these things in America, Warner brothers was like, we want Bruce Willis. Cause he was in Die Hard, and he is, he plays fallow and he is wrong. He is wrong, 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 wrong for this movie. Um, it, it, everything about this is a disaster. F. Murray Abraham refuses to be credited for the film because of a contract dispute where he wanted top billing over everybody else in the cast, <laughs> which is insane because he plays such a minute character. You At one point, Mike Nichols was supposed to direct this with Steve Martin Lee, which I still think is terrible casting. Other actors considered for the Tom Hanks role in this, Christopher Reeve, Chevy Chase, Tom Cruise, Kevin Costner, all of those guys are wrong. Yeah, no one, is anyone right for this movie? I don't think so. any actor in the world. The the Sherman role, I don't think there's anybody that could really play it, especially at that time, not that list. Hanks, De Palma originally wanted, they screen tested, they pretty much had her booked for the job, Uma Thurman. But Hanks rejected mm-hmm. it because she was only 19 at the time, like just turned 19. He was in his 30s. And she was going to be Maria, which is the ended up going to Melanie Griffith. Um, Melanie Griffith ended up getting a boo job halfway through production, uh, which you don't do halfway through because there's massive continuity issues with her giant breast in this movie. I, I, I will say, though, her breasts are magnificent. They are. Yeah, they really are. But they, they it, they're very obvious because I was watching. She's like, did her boobs get bigger? And come to find out they did. <laughs> second unit, the second unit director for this is a guy by the name of Eric Schwab. There's, there's two famous stories about this guy. Um, he, they wanted a shot of a Concorde, which is a defunct, uh, super fast jet plane that would basically take you from the U.S. to the U.K. and parts of Europe, and you could get there at twice the sound, the speed of sound, or something like that. And it was only rich people could fly on this thing, right? And they wanted a shot of Maria Melanie Griffith landing at JFK on the Concorde. Well, the Concorde didn't run all the time. And, and so they had to perfectly time it up. They calculated the time and day because they didn't want just the Concorde shot. They wanted the Concorde shot landing on a certain runway, facing a certain direction so they could get the sunset behind it. And they had to line it up exactly with the setting of the sun. And they, they, they got... <laughs> they, they, their only time all of this would line up was for one time a year for 30 seconds. And they were there. And they got the shot, and it's less than 10 seconds of the movie, and it cost an insane amount of movie money. The, in, the, it was a f- five-camera shot. They had to set five different cameras. It cost 
around $80,000 for less than 10 seconds of on-screen footage in 1989. That is an I mean, insane choice. It, it is an absolutely insane amount of money, but you obviously mentioned the budget at the start of yeah. your, what you were just saying. Yeah. And uh, I, personally, I feel like... Where, what, how did, what did they spend that money on? Like, we well, know they spent some money on this shot, but what else did they spend money on? Because, well, the original, so the original budget was only like 20 million or something like that. And it ballooned over time because they had to film everything in New York. So that's all union stuff. Uh, so you're paying for union, and because everything was going over time, you know, uh, every shot was taking so long, and et cetera, et cetera, you're paying union guys like double time and a half New York rate. So that's going to balloon your cost up because of just location cost. They filmed like different openings and different stuff like that. And then none of them worked. So they reshot a bunch of stuff. They casted an actor. And I forget off the top of my head who it was in the role for uh, the judge, which ended up going to Morgan Freeman. And then they uh, ended up having to not, they ended up having to get rid of him because they, they needed a, black character in that role because otherwise they didn't want a white guy or a Jewish guy or Italian guy screaming at a bunch of African-American people because the movie would be perceived as racist. So they had to end up paying whoever they originally cast, which I can't remember, um, the full length of his contract for everything. And then they had to get Morgan Freeman and he wanted five times the amount that they paid the other guy, which I think it was like, the original guy was like $250,000 for the role. They ended up paying Morgan Freeman over like a million, $2 million for that. So, but they didn't even bring him into production until way late. So the whole thing was just like a disaster. And if you want to know that they, uh, Turner classic movies did a, uh, 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 season of this on one of their podcasts, the season's called the devil's candy. And if you just look up whatever the Turner classic movies podcast is, I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, but they had a whole season about this and I've listened to bits and pieces cause I didn't want to be too influenced as we talked about the movie. Uh, but I would highly recommend that because there was actually an onset journalist who Brian De Palma was kind of friendly with and he knew she wanted to write a book, a, like a behind the scenes book about a movie. So before this movie was even in production, when she was just had given birth six hours after she gave birth and was laying in the hospital, she woke up with Brian De Palma in her hospital room going, we're going to production in six weeks. You can write your book. And she was there. She has on tape interviews with Bruce Willis, Melanie Griffith, behind the scenes stuff, people who worked in production. She's got all the receipts on all of this. I think she did write a book about it too, but Check out that podcast because I think it's like six to eight episodes and uh, it's insane. I, we can't even begin to cover the disaster that this movie was from its inception. It's insane. I um, mean, to be honest, this film feels like it's a disaster. You know, you can fully understand yeah. how it was a nightmare production because yeah. it feels like just emanating from the screen as you're watching, like, this is a total disaster. Um, I never thought... It almost feels like a parody. It's so bad, yeah, it almost feels like yeah, a yeah. spoof. Yeah. yeah, I never thought that I would ever find Tom Hanks unlikable. But I feel like he's the sort of actor that can bring a, a, an essence of likability to any role yeah. that, uh, that I've yeah. personally seen him in. And, uh, yeah, even he can't make 
Sherman McCoy a likable, nuanced, no, you know, empathetic character because he's yeah. not. This is literally the worst person in the world. Like pretty much all of these people are terrible. There's no one nice or good or doing the right thing or standing up for the right causes in this movie. Like no one. Everyone's in it for their but own he, gain. But apart here's from the maybe thing. the judge. <laughs> yeah, but here's the thing: the book. This is the more sympathetic version of the story. Because in the original version of the novel, Sherman is is way less sympathetic than he is here. They softened the Sherman character oh and, and totally changed the story to add plot points to, to try to make you sympathetic towards him. Well, it didn't work. For those that don't know what this movie <laughs> is, it's the story of a guy who's cheating on his wife. He's a rich Wall Street broker. And... And they take a wrong turn during one of their adulterous escapades, which would be him and his uh, adulterous, uh, 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 his mistress, Maria, played by Melanie Griffith, who sounds, ex- whatever accent she's doing here, sounds exactly like Zelda Rubenstein, who played Tangina in Poltergeist. The entire time, all I heard was Tangina in Poltergeist. I don't know. Melanie Griffith has never been like a top flight actress in my mind, uh, but she's terrible in this role. She's actively bad and speaking of zelda you may have noticed beth broderick who's maybe most mm-hmm. famous for playing uh aunt zelda in uh sabrina the teenage witch yeah and they she was dating brian De palma at this time and the whole scene of her sliding off her underwear and seeing her ass on the copier and copying her ass and handing it to bruce willis as she gives him all the inside information and blah 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 that was a scene it's not in the novel. It's not in the essays, the serialized version of it. That was added by De Palma, the screenwriter, seemingly almost just because they wanted her ass in the movie. And the actress, they made her shoot that scene for over nine hours. And his girlfriend or lover or whatever at the time was in tears as they were shooting it. And even when you're watching the movie, without that knowledge, you're like, what the fuck does this scene have to do with anything? Why is this here? And there's so many elements like that in this movie. You're like, why is this here? Why was this the decision? Why are we doing this? What is, and, and, and here's the thing, right? It's one thing to be satire, right? But satire has to have a target. And satire needs to make incisive remarks about its target. And satire is best when it's targets that are not normally taken down where it's speaking incisive truth to power. That has historically been the best satirical stuff from the days of Voltaire moving forward, right? This is not smart. It's not incisive. It is not speaking truth to power. It is dumb and it is ugly. And in particular, it portrays every African-American person in this movie as a swindler or a con artist. And that well, they're no better than these rich, vapid people. Look at these people. Look at these swindlers. Look at these. And it was so reprehensible at the time, the depiction, when the script leaked for this movie, the people of the Bronx who are portrayed as animals literally egged this film, the set. They boycotted it. They protested it. A guy broke through the barrier and went up to De Palma and confronted him because there wasn't a single African-American person on the cast or crew of this movie 
other than like Morgan Freeman and some extras. There was nobody who was actually like, it was an all white crew depicting these broad racial stereotypes. And again, and having no knowledge of the, the novel, there might be a subtlety to the satire or a layer or a angle on it. I don't know that these depictions are, they're a commentary on how rich white people perceive, you know, lower income communities or ethnic communities or black communities or whatever. Maybe not. Maybe it's just patently racist. I don't know. But this movie has no point of view. It just presents people in the most ugly, crudest, broadest stereotypes and doesn't seemingly have anything to say other than be decent to each other at the end. Like, like what the fuck? What? Like, especially now, okay? And I know I'm kind of ranting, but we're, we're living in a moment. And it's not even a moment, okay? It's a moment for white people. It's history for everybody else. But it, for white people in America, and not just here, elsewhere in the world, we are living in this moment where, where white people for the first time, first real time, are having to face real history and real facts about the criminal justice system, about systemic racism, et cetera, et cetera. This movie has absolutely nothing to say of any intelligent means other than the justice system is broken and uh, that, it's, that it's broken because it's willing to offer up innocent white, rich white people to satiate the the cravings of justice from crooked black people that's the opposite of how it works in america this yeah. guy is involved in a hit and run where he hit, hits where well melanie griffith is a driver where they hit and kill eventually kill a young black man and the entire movie wants us to be like well since he wasn't driving it's not really his fault. And really, the black guy was a thief. And so, you know, if, if rich white people go to jail, like, look how, look how guilty everybody is. Everybody's culpable. Both sides. Both sides. Both sides. And it's like, it doesn't play. It didn't play in 1990. Entertainment Weekly called it one of the most indecently bad movies of the year. I think it's one of the most indecently bad movies of all time. In reality, I know I'm ranting. I'm going to finish M. <laughs> To be honest, I'm completely in agreement with everything you're saying. So in America, nothing else to add. (laughs) In America, people of color are disenfranchised from voting. That's the reality. Through gerrymandering and other things, their votes are made null and void by rich white Yale asshole types that populate this movie by the Sherman McCoys of the world. This Sherman McCoy is not some innocent victim who's swept up in ethnic media hysteria. He's a ugly, irredeemable, piece of shit human being. And there is a way to tell a story like this with some kind of cleverness, with some, again, incisiveness, speaking truth to power. This movie isn't it. And it, it absolutely deserves the derision that it received upon release. And, I, and I, if anything, one of the worst movies of the 1990s, it's aged, it's, it's, it's aged even more poorly. A movie, that, a movie that was rotten milk upon delivery has aged like rotten milk. It is putrid at this point. This movie is despicable. I give it a 2 out of 10. It's the worst of the week. Fuck this movie. It's, 
I mean, like, like I just said, I feel like you've basically summed up my thoughts exactly. Um, I felt uncomfortable watching this movie in many yeah. parts. Uh, I feel like your uh, summarization of All Lives Matter, the movie, I really do think that is a, the, literally the tagline for this movie. Um, yeah. It, I understand it's supposed to be a comedy of errors, but the problem with that Firstly, it's got no comedy. It's literally, there's nothing there. It's all error. It's no comedy. It's all error. Um, It feels like it wants to be a satire, like you've already said, but it doesn't actually go anywhere. All it literally does is treat people horrendously. Um, And the whole kind of, the, the, the whole finger pointing of the black community, it feels like, this is a movie that wanted to make a statement, you know, statements about, you know, white privilege, because uh, there's a, a shit ton of white privilege in this yes. movie. Yeah. Um, and, you know, greed and overindulgence and, you know, the fact that white people are bad. And let's be honest, <laughs> most people, most white people are really shitty people. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. And, yeah. But it, it, it does that. So it basically says white people are really bad. Okay, but oh, but black people are just as bad as white people. Yeah, and it it just it just feels so wrong when the the actual like you say the the what actually starts the whole story off is the fact that they run over a, a black kid. Yes, and regardless of what that black kid's doing, you know, as as far as the audience is concerned, that is just a black kid. He's got no weapons. Um, yeah, it's very you know, unclear. You, is, it's unclear, but yeah, yep. you could argue that maybe, yes, he's being slightly threatening. However, that doesn't give them the right to just, you know, reverse into him and drive off. Um, yeah. it, I feel like it's so deeply unsettling and, and uncomfortable. And um, the way that it, it kind of treats these characters, everyone in this movie is miscast, literally everyone, yeah. uh, as you've already said. Um, especially Tom Hanks, uh, especially Bruce Willis, and especially Men- Melanie Griffith as well. Yep. Although her, her breasts, as I've said, um, <laughs> yes. are phenomenal. They are. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, I think any woman wants breasts that look exactly like that. But uh, maybe I'm just talking about for myself here. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but there's, there's, yeah. there's no subtlety in this movie. There's no nuance yeah. in this movie. Everyone... No is shitty in this movie. You can't empathise with anyone. Um, even, like I say, even Tom Hanks isn't likeable in this movie. And so I finished this movie and I I was just like, what did I just watch? Like, what, what is this movie trying to tell me as a viewer? And all I could think of, this movie is just trying to tell me that it's a pile of garbage. Literally, the whole movie is a pile of garbage. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so I, I feel like it has these underlying themes. Uh, but there are so many movies that talk about white privilege and greed, and especially greed in like the 80s and 90s and, and whatever, so much, you know, so much more comprehensively and thoughtfully yeah. than this movie does. This movie, I've, I've not read the, the source material, or the book or anything like that, so I can't comment on, on any of that. But from what you've said, it feels like this was almost an unfilmable project. So. Yeah. Why did they choose to film it? 
is kind of my question. Because it was the most successful book of the 80s? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was the best-selling novel of the decade, and Tom Wolfe was at the height of his powers, and Warner but Brothers just... wanted to make money. <laughs> yeah, it's I, just, I, I, it's I'd go so far. I'd go so far as to say I think De Palma is the the absolutely. If you're looking for subtlety and and sensitivity and uh, that sort of stuff, that's not Brian De Palma. There's there, what what in his work up to this point would be like the 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 only mainstream hit film he had had at this point was The Untouchables. I love The Untouchables. I think it's a really good film. It's not subtle. <laughs> You well, I, I've not seen The Untouchables, but it's on my list to watch. It's it's, it's a great film, and he's okay. a it's it's he's it's great direction, and it's a great maybe great too strong word. It's a very good movie. Okay, okay, it's not subtle. Well, I mean, based off of this movie, if this yeah. was the first Brian De Palma movie that I ever saw, I would not want to watch any of his other stuff. That's right. Yes. Because this is awful. Um, I I actually agree with your score. So I agree with everything that you've said, and I agree with your score. Uh, I also gave this a two out of ten. It's um, awful. I just think it's really messy. Struggle to empathise with anyone, um, and everyone was out for their own gains. That's probably the point. Yeah. That's what it's trying to say. Yeah. Yep. But it just it did not work for me at all. Yeah. At all. It's, to just summarise all of this by just being like. Be decent to each other. It's like so weak, such weak tea. So, uh, I mean, Tom Wolfe hated that speech. It, that speech was originally a part of the the Rolling Stone version of the story. But when he took it to um, publication as a novel, he took it out because he was like, well, people don't really talk like that in real life and it's just it doesn't really work that way and you can't just summarize all of these heady ideas and things and again some 600 page novel give or take just brought down to a two-hour movie it's just it's it was not going to work there there's there's certain things that you can do there's a sophistication of writing and again not having read it maybe it's just as wildly racist and problematic but i'm just saying in theory hypothetically there are there's a sophistication of of uh, writing and nuance that you can put into a v- long form format like a massive encyclopedia size novel, character development and internal reasoning and logic and all these sort of things that that is you cannot translate that to a movie, no. and some things are just not adaptable and 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 they're certainly not adaptable with the wrong director and the wrong cast and crew. And that's what you have here. That's exactly what you have is that you, you have something that probably never should have been a movie uh, made by all the wrong people. And the result, and you know, it's very rare um, that everybody like, we just had a case of this, the movie before where a movie comes out and it's just derided. It flops. It's derided. Everybody hates it. Nobody likes it. There's no redeeming value in it. And, and then you go back to it, and it's very rare that you're like, well, everybody was right. <laughs> All the You might say, well, it wasn't that great, but it's not as bad. Like, how were the duck? Well, it's not great, but it's not as bad as all that, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is a movie that is as bad as you think it is. It really is. It, really it is, is as bad as you've heard. There, there, is, there is no exaggeration. We're, we're not even doing service 
two reasonably articulate people with successful podcasts talking about movies. We're we're failing to communicate to you, Em and I, how bad this movie is. <laughs> because it's that bad. It's that bad. Em yeah. could spend her life trying to build a verbal diorama of how bad this movie is. <laughs> and you still wouldn't be able to visualize it unless you actually <laughs> saw it for yourself. It's that bad. It's... I, I feel like Staggering. trying to, to build a verbal diorama of this, <laughs> it, would, it would not be worth my time. Like, no. It no. would take forever. And um, to be honest, I've got better shit to do than to have to deal with this. So, um, so yeah. if you Since M's never going to do it, the name of the Turner Classic Movie Podcast is The Plot Thickens. And it's season two, The Devil's Candy. You can find it. Uh, you shouldn't do free plugs, but I don't give a shit. You can find it wherever podcasts are found. And it's on YouTube as well. So uh, I'll be actually listening to it in full because uh, I just got to hear more of the dirt behind it uh, now that I've recorded this. Uh, and I, I'll listen to it in full. But I, it's what a, what a, what an absolute shithole movie. Yeah. I will give credit where credit's due. The person who turned me on to that podcast is actually one of our elite patrons, uh, Joe from Real Spoilers, who is one of our top-level patrons. Uh, thank you, Joe, for being a top-level patron and for recommending uh, The Plot Thickens uh, Season 2. I would never would even have known about it. Looking for even more unique and creative movie content? Become a patron. Choose between three levels, and you'll get benefits like a personalized membership card, exclusive shows, early instant reactions to new releases, episode voting power, live streams, and more. Join today, patreon.com slash binge movies. Moving on. We hate this movie. Let's go to one that I know M's going to love. Yes. This was another first time watch for me. Wow. It okay. is 1996's That Thing You Do. That Thing has arrived. We're being invaded. The critics can't get enough of it. I love that thing you do. Siskel and Ebert give that thing you do two thumbs up. I am so happy. Tom Hanks oh, rocks. Well, that was very nice. In a feel-good flick that's flat-out wonderful. That was a pickup line. We're match made in heaven. You can't help but love that thing you do. It's a major motion picture. Rated PG. Now playing. That thing you do was directed by Tom Hanks. It was written by Tom Hanks. It is the triumphant return of Charlize Theron. Last scene in Fury Road is the triumph return of Kevin Pollack. Last scene, I think, in End of Days. I feel like I've seen him since then, but I only remember him from End of Days as far as this show goes uh, because he ends up pissing devil juice. It's a very strange thing. It was released October 4th, 1996 on a budget of $26 million. It only made $34.6 million. And you know what's weird about that, Emma? I don't know if it's true like in the UK as it was true here, but the, 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 the music for this movie was everywhere. We'll get into it. I know I'm jumping ahead, but I can't believe this movie didn't make more money. I know. It's crazy, isn't it? It's. Did, did you know that? Did you know that really wasn't successful? Yeah, well, actually, uh, I did actually do an episode. This is um, the only one out of all of the ones that we're covering that I've, only, that I've actually done my own episode on. I mean... Well, you've already said I love this movie, so <laughs> so it's not it's not particularly uncommon that I will cover movies that I have a huge fondness for. But I I adore this movie. Well, genuinely. I, 
I, you know, you see a movie that's got a 93% of Rotten Tomatoes. I obviously knew mm-hmm. about it. And I'm, we're like, I've just broken the format. But I'm just staggered by the fact that this didn't, wasn't more successful. So let, let me let me get let me get back to my synopsis here, and then we'll go from there. And I'll, I'll since I ranted the last time, I'll let you rant in praise of this movie. Okay. Uh, mid-century teens in the Midwest strike it big as a band before blowing up in a boomer nostalgia trip. All yours. Okay. How much do I love that thing you do? Well, uh, quite a lot, as it happens, because this is obviously a movie that harkens back to, well, you know, bygone days in America. Obviously, I'm not American. I don't know if anyone's figured by the accent. I'm not American. (laughs) I did not live in America uh, in the 60s, because, spoiler alert, not quite that old. But um, I feel like pretty much everyone in the world knows about the Beatles. I feel like they are synonymous with, you know, British pop music, uh, even though obviously, you know, most of the founding members, most of the founding members? No, two of the founding members are dead. I don't know how many are dead. I know Paul McCartney's still alive. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, that's kind of beside the point. My point is, is that everyone knows the Beatles. Everyone knows the songs. Everyone knows the whole Beatles invasion of America in the 60s. Um, And that was basically uh, Tom Hanks was like watching the Beatles perform on TV. And he he was just obsessed with the idea of um, like an invasion of pop. And and there are so many bands, even now, if you look at pop music now, uh, so many bands and artists want to make it big. Mm -hmm. And they will they'll come out and they'll have this amazing hit song and it'll be on the radio. It'll be everywhere. You'll be singing it in your cars at work. And then all of a sudden they disappear. And you're like, well, whatever happened to that, that artist from like, you know, 1997 that I was always hearing at the club or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they just disappear. And it's a fascinating topic to really think about because when we're talking about the Beatles, obviously they did not disappear. Uh, they were not one-hit wonders, obviously, because they're the Beatles. But there were so <laughs> many bands that came after the Beatles that wanted to emulate the success of the Beatles. And what I really love about this movie in particular is it really taps into that nostalgia, uh, the nostalgia of pop. Because, like I say, not even people that weren't even alive during that period, they still know of these bands, you know, the Beatles, yeah. the Rolling Stones, um, the whole, I don't know if this is so much of a, a thing in America, but it definitely is here. Any pop band that comes out here, uh, whether it's a boy band, a girl band, or Adele, or whoever, all they want to do is conquer America. So that is a mm. huge thing for British pop acts. Mm. All they want to do is they say, oh, we've had 10 number ones over here in the UK, and we're massive in Spain and in Sweden, but all we want is an American hit single. That's all we want. Mm. so you hear that a lot from you know pop bands over here so i really feel like this movie although it's set in the 60s it's a very period-based movie it's a very personal movie to tom hanks he's clearly as you said he directed it he wrote it um he it's a very personal topic to him because he just fell in love with the idea of the beatles and you know this pop invasion and everything like that but i I really feel like you could take any band 
any wannabe band or singer from any decade and any generation. And this story is universal mm. because it could literally be, um, I'm just trying to think of like, like, um, like a boy band. Like, I don't know if you've heard of like Take That. They were a big boy band here in the 90s. Nope. Well, exactly. That's my <laughs> point because they wanted to break America and they didn't. Mm. Um, obviously, the Spice Girls is probably yeah. a, a good example Huge. of a band that did break America. Huge. Um, but then you've got more recent bands like um, Little Mix. Yeah, okay. I don't suppose you've ever heard of Little Mix. I've heard. I've heard of Little Mix. Okay. Well, all they wanted to do was break America. <laughs> so I really feel like this is a very universal topic. Yeah. Because anyone can understand that I really want to break the biggest market in the world for something. As podcasters, we yeah. kind of can get that too. Because yep. all you want is to, I don't know, break the Apple Podcast top 10. That's, that's all you want is to break yep. that top 10. So I really feel like this is a very universal subject um, and that it, it's savvy and it's smart because it understands the politics of pop music and that even the biggest hit, you can have the biggest hit in the world, you can have the catchiest song in the world, but that does not guarantee you a career in this, you know, very fickle industry that is music. You know, yeah. not just pop music, any genre of music. It's very fickle. Um, and that just because you have a meteoric rise like the Wonders do, or the Oneidas, however you want to pronounce it, <laughs> um, it's almost always matched by a meteoric fall. Yeah. And I I mean, I, I, can, I can't wax lyrical enough about this movie. I think everything about this movie is, is wonderful. I love the fact that they cast relative unknowns because there's no point having... Uh, you know, a group of guys who everyone knows as actors. Yeah. Because they're supposed to be an unknown band. Um, and obviously Tom Hanks, it was kind of a, a... Tom Hanks wasn't originally going to be in this movie, but they basically said, look, I know you're directing it and I know you're writing it, but we kind of need you to be in it because otherwise who's going to sell this movie? Um, oh, wow. Good and point. Tom Hanks was basically like, well, yeah, I guess. I guess I could be the manager. Of, of these guys um you've obviously got some early Liv Tyler as well who's a love yep. Liv Tyler and she's beautiful she's got beautiful hair yeah. and um yeah I feel like I'm ranting a little bit now <laughs> but like a more of a positive rant <laughs> yeah. than a negative rant but I I yeah. the music is fantastic this is um the late Adam Schlesinger I can never pronounce his name sorry pro uh, sorry but um, Schlesinger, who was from um, Fountains of Wayne. Yeah, uh, who's a bassist for Fountains of Wayne. How weird yeah, is that? He, yeah, he wrote loads of stuff. He died um, last year, I believe, or the year before from COVID. Wow. Um, and he also did the songs for the TV show. I don't know if you've ever seen Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I know it, but I haven't seen it. Yep. So... Him and Rachel Bloom did the songs for that TV show. Wow. He's a fantastic songwriter. And this is that one song, that thing you do, that is constantly on repeat in this movie, and yeah. yet you never get bored of it. Well, that's what I was going to say, right? So if you're going to play a song 50 times <laughs> yeah. in your movie, it better have a sweet hook, right? Yeah. And that's the key to this, is they created, like, a very period-accurate... Um. Move, a song that feels like it could be from that era 
somehow also felt contemporary in 1996. Uh, but there was, at least in the United States, and I, I imagine this was um, true in the UK because a lot of the influence came from the UK. There was this sort of like 60s Britpop revivalism, sort of, where, and, and even in the fashion and the aesthetics, like even Spice Girls had a little bit of that, like the bell bottoms and this and that. But a lot of that stuff sort of came back into the mid-late 90s and youth culture and, and you know, fresh, you know, there's been multiple British invasions of U.S. music. Obviously, the first, of course, was the Beatles uh, and other bands. Uh, you know, most of heavy metal in the early days of metal were, were, were Brit bands. Then, of course, you have, like, new wave and, uh, like, proto-emo music and stuff that was primarily for the U.K., and then we had another, that was the 80s, and then we had another resurgence of it in the mid to late 90s. Bands like Oasis, Spice Girls, many, many, many more. And um, they, there was like this sort of like, it was fresh and it was new and it was different, but there was something sonically reminiscent of 60s music. Uh, and so I think this movie kind of came out at the perfect time. And I think part of the success of it as a movie, I know I can't believe it didn't translate to the box office, but is it's a perfect replica of the childhood or the coming of age of adults who, who would have been of, of a certain age in the late nineties. And, and if, if you want to put this into perspective from 1996 to 1964 is 32 years, 32 years from the point we're recording this was 1990. That's Joe versus Volcano, Bonfire of the Vanities. And the number one song in on the Billboard Top 100 was Hold On by Wilson Phillips. So it would be like somebody coming out today and doing a movie about like Wilson Phillips or like a fictional girl pop band or something. And, and uh, we're not quite in that cultural moment to be able to do that, but you know, the music works and this, the album itself was apparently more successful than the movie yeah. <laughs> because it hit the billboard charts at, uh, uh, number 21 peaked, uh, like worldwide. The song itself, that thing you do peaked at 41 on the top 100, 22 on adult contemporary, 18 on adult top 40. It was nominated for a golden globe and Academy award. And I guess my question to you is, since this is a movie that's influenced by the British invasion, uh, even though this is like a very like Midwestern American band story, did the album, the song was, where was, did it, was it as successful in the UK as it was here? Cause this thing blew up. This song was everywhere in 1996. I don't think it blew up probably in the same way, but I certainly mm. do recall it was on, um, because this, this is a movie that, was I remember it being advertised because I was around um, an ex-boyfriend's house um, and we have something over here. It's it's kind of like cable uh, fit from like the, the 90s, yeah. but it's all delivered by satellite. It's called Sky. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, yep. and so you, you used to get like movies like, you know, quicker than you'd get them on like VHS and DVD. So you'd go to Sky Movies and they'd have like a premiere every weekend or something like that. Yeah. And I distinctly remember seeing the um, ad for that thing you do. Um, and, and it was basically saying, oh, it's premiering on Sky Movies. And I was instantly interested in it. Mm. And I don't know whether it was the fact that I was... Because Liv Tyler wasn't really very well known at the time. No. But I really liked her. And 
I don't know if it was because she was in the ad and I was just instantly like, oh, well, Liv Tyler's in it, so it must be good. Um, because let's be honest, Liv Tyler wasn't really known for very much sort of back in the sort of mid to late 90s period. She started to get more famous, you know, as of like, um, I suppose it was Armageddon really that yeah. maybe shot her into the stratosphere a little bit. Um, but Armageddon came after this, I believe. So, um, so yeah, she, she was kind of getting well known. Um, and then obviously Tom Hanks was in this movie and it was kind of a case of, well, if Tom Hanks is in the movie, then it must be a good movie. Um, but I certainly remember the song was around at the time. Um, from what I gather, it was, the song was a bigger hit in the US, Mm. but I, I feel like maybe the movie was not a bigger hit because, you know, at the end of the day, the, the market in America is so much bigger than the market over here. Yeah. But this this was a movie that I knew that I knew of pretty much immediately. That's always been in the stratosphere for me. Um, and I, I wasn't a big movie person kind of back in the the sort of late nineties. It was really only when the Mummy came about that I was like, oh my god, I love movies instantly. <laughs> um, but <laughs> genuinely, that's why I credit the Mummy with so much. But so I wasn't really a massive movie buff at the time. I'd go you know, to the video rental shop occasionally, but I, I wasn't really like a moviegoer at that time. But something really clicked mm. with me in this movie. And as soon as I did see it, because around about the same time, um, I remember my best friend's wedding was, uh, was, my best friend's wedding was the year after, and it was very much a similar situation. Mm. I saw a trailer for my best friend's wedding and then I ended up watching that around my ex-boyfriend's house on Sky. And, uh, and yeah, I, I feel very much the same about that movie in that I, I love it so very much. Um, maybe it was just the, the time, I don't know. But I, I feel like there was more interest maybe for this movie around people that I knew at the time. Mm. They were actually interested, but I don't think it actually did very well over here i don't think it charted particularly well although to be honest i don't think there's records for that anyway so um but yeah it's it's bizarre really that the soundtrack can be so massively influential it's almost ironic yeah that a movie about a one-hit wonder band and the the band (laughs) just fade into obscurity yeah whereas the the soundtrack can be so astronomically um you know, popular, and the movie fades into obscurity. It's it's literally irony, you know, there in a nutshell. Um, but, I mean, I'm hoping this is getting a bit of a second resurgence because it's on Disney Plus now. So um, I, I really, I hope that people will actually go and hunt this movie out because it it's such an assured, considering this is his directorial debut and his writing yeah. debut. yeah. It feels very assured, like Tom Hanks knew what he was doing. And I love the, the thought and effort that, that's in this movie to, from the, the way that the movie looks, the cinematography, the costumes, the hair, everything. It feels so authentic. It does, yeah. Yep. I mean, I, I'm really curious to hear what you think, considering this is your first watch. The thing that I thought was most interesting about the movie is it is like, if you just say, okay, it's about a pop band that gets a one hit wonder and goes on a tour and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and then implodes. That is not a, uh, news story. 
It almost would feel like, um, like it could be like melodrama. The movie never really tips in any kind of melodrama. The movie never really, even the whole like Faye stuff, the whole Faye and Shades romance kind of thing. It, it, it doesn't really, it's like there, but not really. There's such a light touch to everything. You know, it's, it's such a light touch to everything that it's somehow, even though it's a cliche story of about a one-hit wonder band, it's not a cliche movie. I don't know. I'm doing this. I'm thinking this through in real time. So help me out here, Em. <laughs> okay. Is part of the point of this is, is Hank's trying to tonally create a film that feels like the ephemeralness, the frivolity, the, the um, uh, flash in the pan sort of uh, one-hit wonderness. Is he trying to put that into the tone of the movie? Because the movie itself almost feels like transitory. It almost feels like, okay, this stuff is happening, but really none of it really matters. <laughs> and, yeah. No, you know, I, like, yeah, there's, like, there's, an, airy, there's, a, there's yeah. an airiness to the plotting. There's an yeah. airiness. There is a, it doesn't feel like there are a lot of like genuine stakes in the movie. It doesn't yes. feel like, oh, this matters yeah. because this is this guy's music career. Even when he meets, uh, when Shades meets his, his idol, it doesn't, it doesn't really feel like, oh, my God, like he's meeting his destiny. You know, like it, there's is he is that intentional because that's how pop music works. It's just kind of here and gone. And so the story feels this way because it doesn't really matter. It is just pop music and it is here and gone. Or is the movie missing something? That's that's what I'm unsure of. What do you think? I mean, I will say that there is an extended version of this movie um that is is not on disney plus um, yeah. i believe it's available on there's a blu-ray version i believe that has the extended cut and that adds some additional scenes to do with um charlie's theron's character um and yeah. also a bit more about um the love triangle between jimmy and Faye and shades um and adding a bit more into that and I can only assume all of that was... Oh, and also um, into the relationship between Shades and... Um, I can't remember the guy's name. It's gone out of my head. But the, his mentor character yeah. um, adds a bit more into the relationship of that as well. And I can only assume that they were taken out because I feel like it is almost a commentary of, of how fickle the music industry is. It's yeah. like bubblegum pop. In a way, it's like a yeah. bubblegum movie. It, no, it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. It's not trying to tell you anything important or specific. Yeah. Other than, I don't know, maybe stay away from the music industry if you're not willing to, you know, do X or Y. Um, but even then, it's trying to say that the music industry is so fickle. It doesn't matter how talented you are. You, you may make it or you may not make it. And nine times out of ten, you're not going to make it because that is... The industry, exactly well, the same as modeling, acting. Podcasting. Well, well <laughs> yeah, but you, you're not wrong. It's, it's kind of, it doesn't matter how great a podcaster you are. You could have the greatest podcast in the history of podcasting. But if, you, if you're not kind of picked up right place, right time, you know, yep. Spotify, Spotify comes along every once in a while and offers, you know, a million pounds here and a million pounds there to certain podcasts. Um, but... 
you, you could genuinely be the best at what you do. And it is literally a lottery yeah. as to whether you are going to get that recognition. So, you know, I, I really do feel like you, you have hit the nail on the head in a sense that it's, it's not trying to really delve into anything important. There's no real moral of the story. Uh, so maybe that is to its detriment in a way. It's not trying to, you know, tell you anything important. But I really do feel like sometimes we need movies like this that are just so full of joy mm. and, and feel it's just, it's just about the love of the music mm. at the end of the day. That's really all it's trying to say is that just love the music. Does US TV break big in the UK and in particular in the early 90s, uh, round about the era we're talking, did a TV show called Saved by the Bell make its yes. way to the UK? And oh, did, yes. Did you watch it at all? I was a huge fan. Okay, then you'll remember this. There's an episode about their garage band, the Zack Attack, <laughs> yes. where Zack falls asleep and he has a dream. About, and I'm laughing because we'll get to it in a second, but they, they break big. They have write a pop song, Friends Forever, I think, and it breaks big. And it's very, this movie felt like a protracted version of that episode of Save by the Bell. Oh, come on. I think it's better than that. Well, no, I don't know. I don't, I'm not, I don't, I'm not mean that in a derogatory way, but it's the same plot, right? It, yeah, these okay. kids yeah. go in a garage, write a pop song, somebody goes, I'm gonna offer you a contract, and then Zach goes the, the 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 route of Vanilla Ice and MC Hammer, and breaks up the band because of his ego, and he's Jimmy. And the thing I thought that was interesting, though, which is kind of its own commentary, again very lightly, is the postscript for all of these characters. Jimmy ends up being a record producer. And it's like here's the guy that quits the band because he can't stand working for the label. Because he's an artist, and he ends up being the biggest sellout. Yeah, well, but it's never, you know, it's never because it's just like this postscript. It's like it, the the movie never kind of just hammers anything home, and in a, in a way, that is that's good, right? I prefer that it not just like beat me over the head with its themes. Uh, but I just thought that was interesting. Of like, of all this guy and all of his, you know, beefs with everything there, he just just really wrecks. <laughs> these other guys' chances towards everything. And it's yeah. like, well, of course he becomes a multi-million dollar record producer. Of course he does. Because he's a fucking phony. <laughs> but I'm giving it a 7.5 out of 10. And here's the thing. We, we're working off of, uh, uh, I mean, you could do whatever you want, but uh, I, the way that I interpret these scores, because I get asked about this all the time, is... Uh, they're based on the American grading system, which is different than everywhere else in the world, and it doesn't make any sense. Because when you hear 7.5, you think, that's terrible. Oh, my God, that's terrible. But it's really like, say, it's a 75%, which means it's two-thirds of it I found to be really enjoyable, really successful. It is a passing grade in the United States. It's not a great one, but it's a passing grade. I think a 75 puts you in, like, a, B, it's like a C range movie, maybe D plus. So, no, I think it's like a C. I think it's like a C movie. And that's kind of where I put it because in comparison to the rest of the movies on this particular list, I think the direction is good. I think the production design is incredible. I think the acting is good. 
Um, to me, it, it, I, I think Tom Hanks is actually really great in this movie. I agree with you. I think Liv Tyler is fantastic. Her, her the delivery of her brutal breakup speech to Jimmy is fantastic. Um, it's just, I left me. It, it was like for something that is so bubblegum. I just felt it went on too long. I just was like, uh, for something so. Uh, I don't know I'm looking for the right word for something so temporary for something so vaporous. Yeah. Inconsequential. Uh, inconsequential. Bingo. There you go. Did it need to be this long? I, I just like, okay. All right. And I just found myself kind of like wanting to get to it, the end, but I, but the thing is I like the ending. So it's really kind of the middle. that didn't work for me. So that brings the score down a little bit. So it's not a terrible movie. It's a good movie. It's just mm -hmm. in comparison to the rest we have here this week, it's going to be my number four. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, that's fine because, you know, we were in the similar situation, I think, with Joe versus the volcano. Yes. So, uh, yeah. yeah, obviously, yeah, maybe I was a little bit too harsh on that one. But I don't know. I think it makes sense in the context of the movies that we're talking about. Yeah. But, um I guess I'm going to have to be quite controversial oh, again. Oh, no. Here we go. <laughs> okay. So I I love this movie. I know it's inconsequential and it's fluff and it's bubblegum, but I really love it with all my heart. I think it's absolutely wonderful. I think it's so underrated. I think it's Tom Hanks as a, a writer and a director I know he has done other writing, directing things. I think he did Larry Crown as well, which I've not seen, so I can't I have really comment. Yeah. Um, but he's not done anything else like this. And I really wonder why. I, I feel like maybe he was a little bit burned by the experience because it didn't do as well as he thought it would. Mm. Um, because, you know, if you've got Tom Hanks in the movie and as a writer and as a director... Yeah. Maybe the studio were thinking, well, this should be huge. And it wasn't. So, um, yeah, may maybe he was a little bit burned by the uh, experience of doing it. But I don't think that should put him off because he's clearly got a talent for topics that he is passionate about. Yeah. And he's clearly so passionate about this bygone era of like Americana and the music and everything like that. And I think his youth. Just, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It resonates throughout this movie. Um, as I said, the, the songs in this movie are great. The hair and makeup and the costumes, it feels very authentic, but it also feels quite timeless, which I really like as well. Um, so I have given this a 9 out of 10. Whoa! <laughs> because, because I love it. And yes, I will be completely honest, I am incredibly biased. And I am very biased against things I really like um, because, you know, the way that I look at things, I, I have a podcast and my podcast is not a reviewing podcast. I will tell people what I think, but I don't review movies. I am not a film critic and I've never claimed to be a film critic because let's be honest, I, I clearly I can't do it. Um, my podcast is talking about the history and legacy. That is the stuff that I love. This has a fascinating history to it mm. as well. So because I'm not a critic and I'm not a reviewer, I feel like it's okay for me to be a little bit biased. Out of the five, this is my best. 
Of course it is. Added to the guest list. That thing you do. Wow. I'm not, honestly, I'm not surprised. <laughs> well, to be honest, I'll be completely I, you honest. You know, I, I guess I'm only surprised because of the next movie we're going to talk about. I thought maybe that would be your number one. Okay. No, actually. Oh, okay. Well, I did teeter between this and another one as my number one. Oh. For a long time. There was a lot of back and forth. Um, but it wasn't. It's not the next one that we're talking about that I was teetering. Wow. Uh-oh. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> you're throwing some curveballs my way. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, um. Look, I can't fault you. I can't say, hey, well, you know, you're, uh, you really enjoy this movie and you shouldn't. That, that's not really what we do here. You know, there is a debate element to it. There is a conversation element to it. But ultimately, there is a guest list and there is a short list. And, you know, as the guest, you are free to add anything you want to to that list. So I'm, I'm not, I would not put it there. I didn't, obviously. No, yeah, and I, but I appreciate that. But your reasoning makes sense. So, well, the thing is, your your criticism makes sense. So, I completely understand your points of view. All right. Well, the real shocker is this next one, which I wow. <laughs> of course, we're talking about 1998's "You've Got Mail," which currently has a 69 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. They couldn't stand each other. Joe Fox, F O X, F O X. Look at each other. She's a pill. That caviar is a garnish. Until they realized. <gasps> They were perfect for each other. I don't know his name. This woman is the most adorable creature I've ever been in contact with. She's good to be a real dog. Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, you've got mail. What are you girls talking about? Huh? Cyber sex. <laughs> Rated PG starts Friday, December 18th at a theater near you. You've Got Mail was directed by Nora Ephron with a screenplay by Nora Ephron and her older sister, Delia Ephron. It is based on... Go, dear my French audience, please forgive me. Parfumery <laughs> uh, uh, by Miklos Laszlo. It's the triumphant return of Greg Kinnear, last seen in As Good As It Gets. It is the triumphant return of Dabney Coleman, last seen in Dragnet. It is, <laughs> this movie was released December 18th, 1998, on a budget of $65 million. Hold on to your hats. This movie made $250.8 million. A mom-and-pop bookshop owner unknowingly falls for the big-box book magnate running her out of business as both fail to foresee the death of brick-and-mortar stores. Say that ten times fast. That is one hell of a tongue twister. <laughs> Isn't it? There's so yes. many B words in yes. that. This was originally a 1937 Hungarian play called Parf Parfumery. Well, the st skeptics and all the people have a little bit of... Let me do this again. Oh, it's live, pal. Sorry. 1940 film, The Shop Around the Corner, which is probably what it's most known for. 1949 movie musical, In the Good Old Summertime. Then it becomes this. Um, I think the current charm of the movie for me is that the whole internet was just like a thing for instance they asked george who's uh steve zahn who i assume was cast because of um hank hanks in the last movie uh thing mm -hmm. you do yeah and he he they go george are you online because that used to be a thing you and i are probably around 
vaguely the same age. That it wasn't just implicit that everybody was on the internet. It's true. Yeah. And, yeah, and the, you, you're yeah. like, oh, or do you have an email address? Are you online? <laughs> you know, like, which is, I don't even know. There's so many people that don't even like use email anymore. It's basically just like a, it's like what real mail has become. Where it's just like junk, you know, and like government notices or something and spam, you know, it's like very, but email used to be a thing and the internet used to be a thing and there was intentionality to it. And so that's part of the charm of the movie. The other part of the charm of the movie is that this movie is basically Nora Ephron and her sister talking to each other. And that's why it works so charmingly well for me. Any of the correspondence voiceover stuff definitely is like the thoughts of two women, <laughs> even Tom Hanks. It is the thoughts of two playwrights, two novel writers, two screenwriters who are so pithy. And are so uh, excellent at turns of phrase. And it's these two, and that's the, to me, above everything else, that's the best part of the movie. And it got me thinking that so much of what they say in this movie, are their, their correspondence with each other, are basically what is now tweets. The rant about Starbucks that's in this movie is a Twitter thread. The whole purpose of places like Starbucks is for people with no decision-making ability whatsoever to make six decisions just to buy one cup of coffee. Short, tall, light, dark, calf, decaf, low-fat, non-fat, etc. So people who don't know what the hell they're doing or who on earth they are can, for only $2.95, get not just a cup of coffee, but an absolutely defining sense of self. Tall, decaf, cappuccino. So much of this is just tweets because in real life, real people don't talk like this. They don't act like this. They don't pontificate like this. But we do talk and act like this on the internet, which got me to thinking in the early 2000s, there was such a thing as blog culture and was blogging our collective attempt as a species to be Nora Ephron. <laughs> because so much of this feels like, it feels like Nora Ephron and her way of phrasing things and her, her, her written cadence and her written vernacular, so to speak, is so much of internet language and lingo now. I feel like we are, we now are native tongue on the internet, at least for some of us, uh, especially in the blogger era, uh, was Nora Ephron. I, I, and I, I didn't hit me until I'm like, oh, my God, I, that's, that's exactly what's going on here. And I, that's, I raised the question of, like, how many failed bloggers became podcasters? Because it feels like there's a direct line. Hello. Between. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a blog that very few people read? That, yes. Yeah. <laughs> then you're probably a podcaster. Uh, <laughs> The I feel like you just know me. <laughs> <laughs> or I know myself. The miracle <laughs> of all of this is that the miracle of this movie is that their love affair has absolutely zero ramifications on business. Tom Hanks is celebrating the closure of indie bookstores <laughs> at the beginning of this movie. And then he falls in love with this woman. And then he gains the knowledge that the woman he's running out of business 
is the woman he loves. And it leads to no repentance of any kind or even a grand gesture. And I thought of something, Em. I thought of something really cynical that they could have done in the world of this movie, which is how easy would it have been for Tom Hanks to go to his dad and his grandpa and go, from a PR perspective, we should reopen the shop around the corner. This is after the events of the movie, right? They're in love, blah, 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 blah. And we reopen it, but we reopen it as a nonprofit for children's literacy. And we stock the shelves with the books and we establish a grant and it's us giving back to the neighborhood. And that's his angle for the business. And it's good PR. We're not putting uh, shops out of business. We're, we're, you know, we're helping. We're, we're, you know, and the person who's going to lead our nonprofit or organization with a very, you know, nice salary drawn from the endowment is the, the woman he loves and she gets her mom's shop back. In a, Do you know what? I thought of exactly the same thing. <laughs> yeah! Except mine wasn't a non-profit. So I thought maybe after the events of this movie, Tom Hanks, his character, so obviously she's had to close the shop because yes. of him. So yeah. as some sort of romantic grand gesture, he then buys yeah. the shop. Um, yep. But it keep, keeps it as the shop that it is. So no yeah. one knows that it's owned by him. And then he gifts it to her and all of that sort of stuff. That was what I had in my mind as what would happen as like some grand romantic gesture to, to make up for what he's done. Because in... ultimately he's ruined her <laughs> livelihood. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Okay. In my notes, I have, there is no grand gesture. Because yeah. here's the, like exactly what you're saying. Because the old Hollywood version of this, and I haven't seen the shop around the corner, but the old Hollywood version of this is that at the third act, you know, when movies just would abruptly end, they would just end. <laughs> the third act is she has to go sign some paperwork with an attorney to hand the shop over to the next owner. And it's the reveal is it's him. Yeah. And that's when they fall in love with each other. And it's him signing the shop back over to her. And then they kiss or whatever. They don't kiss because of the code, but they hug or something. And then it just ends. The movie just goes to the end and then it's over. <laughs> None of that happens. No. None of it. <laughs> no. He takes from her, her livelihood. But beyond that, her mother's shop, yeah. the, the, her mother is dead. It, it is where the, it, it, this is the place that houses the memory of her mother and her twirling together, yeah. dancing together. And the movie doesn't shy away from the fact that she's like, she's the, the line is I, the truth is I am heartbroken. I feel like I'm losing my mother all over again. I know it's so, it's so devastating. And, and it never, that never there's gets no re resolution. There's no resolution to it at all. He doesn't make her the VP of his company so she can imbue it with more humanity. There's no like, oh, well, you know, whatever, whatever. Like, uh, you know, you're going to change the way that we do business. There's montages of her protests that do little more than create montages. This, this breaks almost all the rules of rom-com <laughs> yes. theory, except for a few. We have Frank, and on, on, on my rom-com theory on this show, we refer to as the dud. The male or female, usually the female lead, has to be dating a dud. Mm -hmm. In this movie, Frank is the dud. He has to be a dud because there's almost always in a rom-com infidelity, emotional or otherwise. And we as the audience have to be on board with our protagonist 
flirting or fucking people that they're not in relationships with. Yeah. And this movie works because they write him out by basically making him unfaithful to a measure so as not to make Meg Ryan look like a trollop. And it kind of <laughs> works. Uh, well, it's the, it's got the same for Tom Hanks, though, because he's got yes. Parker Posey yes. as his significant other, and she's awful <laughs> she's just awful. as a general person, yes. not Parker Posey, but the character. Yeah. Yes. Um, so it's almost like the movie's trying to say, look, these people belong together. Look at their... Significant yep. others. Look how terrible they are. And it's like so tropey. <laughs> well, speaking of significant others, mine pointed out that the entire time in this movie, right, Meg Ryan's obsessed with the computer. Boop, 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 boop. But Frank is obsessed with typewriters. Yeah, that's a which, really good point. And I had never realized that before. And either had they, and they were like, well, look, he's obsessed with the typewriter and she's obsessed with the computers. So it's telegraphing to you that these people are not meant for each other. But then I got to thinking about it. I extrapolated from there. Okay, 1998, typewriters were more or less word processors. Word processors with like floppy disks and stuff like that were still kind of around. But an actual typewriter, typewriter already outmoded by 98. So I get it, right? And she's on the internet and has like a, what that point would have been a fancy, you know, MacBook and all this sort of stuff. Um, but the weird thing about the movie is that her store is the typewriter equivalent of the Fox Books. Fox Books is the MacBook. Her store is a typewriter. And so part of me wonders, is this movie like, <laughs> is, is, is there, are the Efrons like pro, it, again, this has changed, like, but in 1990s culture, are they like pro, is this a pro big business movie? Well, it's really interesting that you say that because one of the things that I picked up on this rewatch, because I first saw this movie, you know, ages ago and I rewatched it ages ago. So wasn't very fresh in my memory. I it's yeah. actually the one that I watched most recently because as of recording, I watched it this morning, so it's very fresh <laughs> yeah. in my mind. Um, one of the things that I really picked up on was that this movie is based on independent. Oh, it's an independent company, independent bookseller. Whether whatever kind of independent store you are, whether you're an independent uh, coffee house or a bookshop or yeah. a clothing store, whatever you're independent and. Meg Ryan's character is fiercely protective of this store because it's her mother's store. She she passed away and all of that sort of stuff. So you get this character is is loves the fact that she's independent and that she is the the bookshop for everyone to visit. And yet, this movie is so focused on corporate culture and commercialism and um you know, the fact that I think it positions the Fox books as the Amazon of this world. You know, yeah. they even say, look, because Amazon back in the day used to be an online bookshop. Yes. And people forget that. But um, back in our day, when the Internet yes. was new, Amazon sold books yep. and they sold cut price books. And that was basically what they were known for. And um, so it feels very much like Fox books is like, is the Amazon of this scenario and then, you know, you compare that to your little independent bookshop that you might, you know, go into town to visit. Um, and this is a movie that's determined to highlight the plight of independent retailers by saying how difficult it is when you've got a, 
a Fox Books or well, Amazon's obviously not on the high street, but, a, you know, a huge corporate name coming onto the street opposite you and taking away your business and how difficult it is for independent. And it's something that here in the UK, um, there's always quite a lot of focus on, you know, independent retailers and the struggles that they face and, you know, that our town centres are dying because Mm -hmm. they're just full of the huge corporate names now, basically. Um, So you kind of think, well, this movie is actually trying to say something about shop independent because that's, that's what that's what we want. We want to keep these independent businesses going. But then on the other hand, it promotes a hell of a lot of Starbucks, which is solely responsible for the demise of so many independent coffee shops around the globe. Yes. And then it's like, well, okay, what is this movie actually trying to tell us? Because it, it's clearly not trying to tell us about the plight of independent retailers. No. Because it's actively promoting the huge corporations that are doing this day in, day out. And I'm like, what, well, what is going on here? I think, I think the closest you can get to a thesis statement, which but here's the thing, it's bizarre because there's also, and I almost wonder because there's two screenwriters and their sisters, I almost wonder if one is more pro-corporatist and one was more pro-independent and both tones yeah. are in the movie. Because uh, when she decides to close the shop, um, Birdie or the the older person's like, "I that's very brave of you." And she's like, "Well, thank you. That's like that's bullshit." And she's like, "No, it's very brave. You're choosing to believe that you can do something new, right?" But then Meg Ryan has this whole line, which is actually like a really again very prosy sort of way of sp- speaking, but you know, corresponding, where she's like. You know, some foolish, some silly or foolish person will say that it's a sign of the ever-changing nature of New York, blah, blah, blah. I know this because this is the sort of stuff I say, right, about the closing of the shop. Um, and so it's like, on the one hand, it, 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 it wants to say of like, it's like a, a, a business progressive movie of like, well, bigger business comes in, and if the people don't support your business, because that's ultimately what but fails. She does all this to drum up all this support and people get behind it initially. But even the author, who's a friend who's like, Oh, Fox books, pieces of shit, blah, blah, blah. Well, she goes there to get her, 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 she sells out basically. And what it basically says is if people don't support, go out of their way to be inconvenienced and pay higher prices to support local businesses, then big business is going to take over. But then it also seems to say, and that's just the way it is, so you better figure out how to move on with your life. And it's like, are we, like, to your point, is are we saying that's a bad thing? Or are we saying that's just the way it is, so that's the world buttercup, suck so it suck up. Suck it, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't really know. I think what's really interesting is watching this now, because at least in the United States, as I'm watching scenes before, the, like, the grand opening of, like, Fox Books being loaded with pastry and coffee and there's plenty of like plush couches and people are sitting around and reading books and talking and at least in the United States we have nearly eliminated all what is sociologically known as third places or third spaces even corporate faux third spaces in the 90s the 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 angst was you know uh, we had borders books and these sort of places uh, Barnes and Noble these stores are they're 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 facsimiles they're faux versions of 
of even Tom Hanks mentions it in the movies. Like I've said, we were a goddamn piazza. Like there was like, well, this is like corporified, uh, 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 sellout version of coffee house. And it's a sellout version of third spaces where people can sit and talk and read books and form community and find like-minded people, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we don't even have those anymore because all the Starbucks, United States, the big ones that had plenty of plush seating in places to hang out and talk and sit there forever, reading the newspaper. They've all been remodeled. They have very little seating. Most of them are drive through oriented. The ones that do have seating are the, they're like these chairs that are like impossible to sit in because they don't want you just hanging out using the Wi-Fi. They want you to get your airport airplane style food and they want you to get the fuck out. Hmm. All the bookstores have been all put out of business by Amazon. They don't exist. You know, there's like one Barnes and Nobles in this entire area. Um, Yeah. Oh yeah. Even the big brick and mortar Fox book style stores, they're gone. They've, they've been gone for almost a decade now Wow. because Amazon has eaten them up. So I think what's really interesting watching this movie now is we like Fox books. Fox books is now the small retailer in comparison to an Amazon. (laughs) And you think about the economic, like the inequality and all this sort of stuff that we're experiencing. It's like this movie feels quaint by comparison. So if anything, like some of the edge on the Fox books angle kind of gets worn off because you're like, well, at least the United States, like this guy's got five years before he's out of business. Or maybe, yeah, maybe seven if he's lucky. Like Fox Books is gone. It doesn't exist. Like they talk about, oh, maybe it'll become something got off like a baby gap. Baby gap doesn't exist anymore. That's gone. <laughs> Brick and mortar stores are gone. Like It's really interesting that you say yeah. that because, I mean, here in the UK, we, we do still have, uh, well, close to where I live. Um, I used to live in a town about 20 miles away. And that has a bookshop that's very similar to Meg Ryan's bookshop. Uh, in the movie, it's laid out in a similar way. Looks, you know, it's got the old wood. Yeah. Um, and it's a beautiful little independent bookshop. Um, and I've bought many books from there when when I lived in the town. Yeah. And also in the same town, there was a secondhand bookshop where you could go and you could pick a book up for a pound. And they had all the classics and everything there, and people would donate. And it was lovely, lovely little secondhand bookshop. Um, but where I live. There aren't any big chain bookshops like we have. Um, we have a couple of big chain bookshops uh, here in the UK, but they tend to be kind of in the bigger towns and cities because I'm in mm. reasonably small town. Um, so we only really have the the small independents. Um, but even in the town that I live in now, there is a still a small independent bookshop mm. that has because this is a town I I was born in and grew up in, and it's been there ever since I was a child. And wow. it's still there. Um, and remarkably, it's still going, um, which, you know, considering the Amazon craze and everything like that, I have no idea how. Um, but, yeah, we, we seem to at least be trying to retain some of these independent places. Like there's a couple of good independent coffee shops in our town centre that are opposite the chain <laughs> coffee shops. Um, mm. But they still they're not they still seem to be doing OK. Um, I think in the it, U.S. you've seen a res- what's interesting is you I think you've seen a resurgence of like independent booksellers and shops and coffee shops and things like that. 
what's interesting though is that the Fox Books equivalent of like the big box bookstore. Yeah. That's really that's weird. what's that's what's gone. So it's it's it that is kind of if you were to look at at least the US economy and business and we're, we're way off the plot now but basically <laughs> <We all know. laughs> it's it's the same thing almost with movies that we've talked a lot about on this podcast with a sub series that we limited series we did called the state of cinema and elsewhere which is in some of the filmmakers I've I've interviewed is that the middle class of movies is gone you have kind of lower budget movies and then you've got blockbusters but that middle class of movie at least as far as theatrical release, that's gone. There's, they're, they're not funding those types of movies as much, if at all, anymore. The middle class of business, I guess, or upper middle class of business, of like the big box store, that's dying or it is gone in some, for some products. So you'll have independent retailers. That's kind of reemerging. And then you have massive online businesses. But there is no middle ground. There is no, you know, there is no equivalent, right? So it's that's what's really interesting is just to see how much the world's changed. Mm. This is I mean, I'm not the a world huge, has changed so much since this movie. Yeah. This movie is a time capsule. Yes, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, it is. And the thing is, I'm not a huge rom com guy, but I have such a soft spot for this movie. I, I genuinely love this movie, and it it it's heartbreaking to me. To because it's it's like I love the movie, uh, but in comparison to some other stuff that we watch, it's just middle of the pack for me. So I'm gonna this is my number three, and I'm gonna give it a seven point nine out of ten. I love it, but uh, it, there's so many just like odd quirks to it, like dab like his grandpa maybe fucked Meg Ryan's mom. Dabney Coleman has, has been married multiple times. The nanny subplot. The, oh, yeah, um, that's weird. <laughs> the, that his aunt is younger than him and his, so is his brother. Like, There's just so much weird added stuff to this uh, that I, I would actually go so far as to say I think this is my favorite romantic comedy of all time. I love really? this. I, th- I okay. think it's better than Sleepless in Seattle. Uh, I think this is – I think this. I don't think they ever did it better together. I love the movie. It's it's an infinitely rewatchable comfort film for me. But I can only give it a seven point nine out of ten because uh, here's why: I you have hard science and soft science, right? Like you have like you know physics versus like uh, sociology. This is soft plotting. The actual facts, story beats, don't really matter <laughs> as much as this connection between these two. Like darling soul, who one is who we want to see together, and if they focused at all on the actual facts, like we have a little bit here today, it would be ludicrous, if not despicable, that she would never be able to forgive him, let alone love him. There's no chance in hell that she'd be like, "Oh, I was hoping it would be you." No, she wouldn't. She'd be like, "Fuck the guy I love has <laughs> has run me out of business and manipulated me." You fucking catfished me this entire goddamn time to manipulate me into falling in love with him before he revealed his real identity. How fucking unfair. Uh, but the, because the movie like it doesn't really focus on any of that. It's just sort of like doing its own weird, lighthearted thing. Uh, it somehow works. I, here's the thing, though. I do find myself, uh, somebody said to me that they found themselves Every time they watch the movie, they get mad at Tom Hanks in the middle, but they forgive him by the end. 
I don't get mad at Tom Hanks until the end of the movie because it leaves with that. But you put her out of business, you son of a bitch. Like, like, you know, that bothers me. Uh, the ending bothers me as charming as it is. And he says, don't cry shop girl. Oh, that gets me every time. I love it. I think it's a great movie, but it's only my number three, 7.9 out of 10. How about you? So I have a real fondness for this one as well. Um, but only because it, it feels like, like I say, it's a time capsule. I have yeah. huge nostalgia for the whole dial up internet thing and screen names where you didn't have to have a thousand numbers after the word because yeah. You know, everyone, you know, nowadays you'd be shop girl 853826428300. You know, it, it'd be ridiculous, yeah. wouldn't it? Um, yeah. You know, this, and this is, this is a movie that is very contrived. Yes. But it's also very sweet as yes. well. Yeah. And I think it is a movie that's very easy to pick apart because that's, that's basically what we've just done. We've just basically yeah. picked it all apart. Um, and it, it also lives on and dies on the idea that these two people are communicating online as total strangers and that they're not actually saying anything about their personal lives, who they are. Yeah. And that's not really, like you said, that's not really how people talk to each other. Um, so, yeah, it's very contrived as a setup. Yeah. But I also think it's very sweet. And as a comparison to... Sleepless in Seattle, because inevitably it does get compared to Sleepless in Seattle, because mm -hmm. obviously that movie was huge. Mm -hmm. But I really like the fact that in this movie, you get more of Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan actually interacting with each yeah. other, yeah. talking to each other, because their chemistry is fantastic. Yeah. There's no denying that they work so well together. And at least they get to have those moments where they can you know, bounce off each other a little bit. And, and I just think that they work so well. And going back to what we said before, I would love to see them yeah. get together for, you know, one more movie of, you know, talking about, um, you know, maybe a slightly older couple and the love between a slightly older couple in like their 60s or late 50s or whatever. They're both, widow, they're both widowed or something, yeah. Yeah. Or one's divorced, one's is, widowed, yeah. Tom Hanks is 65, I believe. I'm not sure how old Meg Ryan is. Maybe she's late 50s. But I think that would be so sweet to see them yep. back on the big screen together because they are phenomenal. Um, as I, I think, said, I think to compare contrast just very shortly, I think Meg Ryan is outshines him in Joe versus the volcano. I think he outshines her in this movie. She does a good job, but I think if it's not if it's not Tom Hanks in this role, this movie doesn't work. He's so good and so charming even as he is kind of the heel, but not really like, it's just such a only he could do this. So this is, this is some outstanding yeah. work from him. Yeah. Yeah. And just kind of, you mentioned about the catfishing uh, earlier and it's something that I've been thinking about a lot as, as someone who, you know, me personally, I've spent a lot of time online, you know, back in the days when you had to use dial up, I remember using dial up. Um, and I also remember, you know, going into those old chat rooms and just chatting to random people and, mm -hmm. you know, arguably, no, you didn't give too much personal information away because most of them were perverts. I am no pervert. <laughs> but um, <laughs> let's be honest, most of them still are. But um, <laughs> But my point is, is that people are very complex. And yeah. what you see online 
it's never 100% what that person is in real life. And that's not yeah. because they're necessarily catfishing you. It could be that they're catfishing you. But no one is ever going to open up 100% to someone they're talking to online because you don't know who that person is. Yeah. And I think that is genuinely the, the best thing you can do is, is not to give too much of yourself away. But I really like that this movie actually tries to go some way in depicting the difference between online and offline personas, that these people ha- are the people that they are online, but they're also the people they are offline yeah. as well. Um, and I kind of like the little nuances there because people are complex and people don't have just one personality trait. You know, you can be con- you could be 100% happy online all the time. You're not going to be 100% happy offline in the real world. It's just yeah. not the way that people are. But that doesn't mean that that person isn't, happy if you know what i mean well Um, i i to that point though i think this movie does something really interesting which i do think is true of the era and i think what the internet used to be able to offer people in anonymity was the ability to reveal certain things about yourself that you wouldn't in your real life because you were anonymous and speaking to strangers and that was a facet of the old internet where you, would, you wouldn't necessarily reveal, like, this is my social security number and this is where I work and, like, that sort of stuff. But the conversations they're having with each other where they're talking more through their day about what they really thought about something, what they really, their fears, their insecurities, what they really think about themselves. And sort of they're in a weird way through anonymity being able to be a more authentic than they can with their partners or their friends or whatever. That's a facet of the old internet that doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. That we're now doing, and and rightfully so, what you're talking about, which is we don't really, we're less anonymous online, and we're not really fully portraying, you know, we're not talking to a room of strangers anymore. We're in this weird middle space where it's uh, these weird parasocial relationships that are, familiar but not intimate and so we end up sort of projecting a digital self um which is just like really weird because you used to have a handle or an avatar or something and that's so that was like a fake version of you but you'd say real things about yourself (laughs) and now we have real versions of ourselves online almost everything we say is fake and mm, that's, yeah, it's, that's it's interesting it's yeah, really interesting it is um but um yeah i i actually agree with your spot i've also got this at third mm. in my list um but i gave it a slightly lower score to you i gave it a 7.5 oh that's not that's not too low um yeah. but, we're right, we're right yeah. about there then yeah so so basically joe versus the volcano was a 6.5 and then You've Got Mail was a 7.5 because I think You've Got Mail is a slightly better movie. Mm. But that hopefully that goes some way to explain why Joe versus the Volcano is a bit lower. Um, yeah, it does. You know, but for me, there's like looking back on it, like Joe versus Volcano, I gave an eight. But this I gave a 7.9. <laughs> so they're yeah. neck and neck. Yeah, yeah, they're neck and neck for me, and which surprised me. Because one is what my favorite rom-com of other of all time, and one's a brand new movie that everybody hates except for you and I, apparently. <laughs> and then Roger Ebert. <laughs> I all <Roger> right. <laughs> now another movie I'm just watching for the first time. There's a trend wow. this week. 
Okay. 1999's The Green Mile, which currently has a 79% on Rotten Tomatoes. You might want to reconsider getting in the sale with this guy. Why's that? He's enormous. And the soul of man, he deserves to fry for what he's done. Ah! He was found with the victims in his arms. I don't think he did it at all. Take my hand, boy. I do not see God putting a, a gift like that in the hands of a man who killed a child. From the director of the Shawshank Redemption. You're talking about a miracle. Tom Hanks. I am. The Green Mile. This film was written and directed by Frank Darabont with, uh, based on The Green Mile by Stephen King, which was a series of like short novellas that he put out. Uh, and my dad read them in, in real time. So I remember before this movie came out, The Green Mile. Uh, this is the triumphal return of Sam Rockwell from Iron Man 2, triumphal return of Bonnie Hunt from Jerry Maguire, triumphal return of Graham Greene, last seen in Dances with Wolves. It is the triumphal return of Barry Pepper, last seen in Saving Private Ryan. This is the triumphal return of Patricia Clarkson, last seen in Jumanji. And it is the triumphal return of Gary Sinise, uh, last seen in either, it would be Ransom, I think is the last time we saw Gary Sinise. Um, this movie was released December 10th, 1999, on a budget of $60 million. It made $286.8 million. God sends a miracle in black skin, and whites falsely accuse him of crimes and sentence him to death. Okay, there is a generous reading of this, and there is an ingenerous or ungenerous reading of this movie. Okay. And I'm conflicted. The generous reading of it is, this is a movie that is making the point about uh, white supremacy, basically. That if there was a man sent from heaven <laughs> in black skin the amount of pain who could heal the world, the amount of pain and anguish that would be inflicted on that man because of the color of his skin, because of his social standing, his class, uh, and because of the hate inside the hearts of other people would be enough to, to take that man's life, to, to make him despair even being on this planet. And we would much rather just snuff out uh, the gift that is blackness uh, than uh, have a just society. And the Tom Hanks character uh, kind of pays the price for that, right? He's cursed with irregular, like this life is snuffed out, but you are going to have to live with the injustice for the rest of your life, which is going to go on forever and ever and ever. That's the generous reading of it. The lack of generosity towards it is that this is a, the trope is known as the magical Negro. This is a magical black man who's here to teach white people a lesson through his pain and suffering. And if it's a, it's a beautifully well-done movie. And regardless, direction-wise, I mean, this is a great-looking movie. It's a well-directed movie. It's a well-acted movie. Michael Clark Duncan is fantastic in this movie, as is all the supporting cast. Uh, it's, it feels very rich and meaty, and that there are substance and stakes, and it's emotional, regardless of whether it's message is good or bad, so to speak. 
But if it's if, if we take the generous reading of it, then it is a very it's a great film all the way through. If it is just a black people suffer to make whites better, magical black person film, then it's uh, pretty reprehensible and overly relying on schmaltz and sentimentality. So it is, if you're by process of elimination, it is my number one, and I'm adding it to the short list, but not without deep internal conflict. I mean, I lean more towards your slightly more positive yeah. uh, message of the fact that this man, this African-American man, has been bestowed with these gifts. Yeah. But the world is not ready for him or his gifts. Yeah. And so rather than stay on a world that treats him so reprehensibly, uh, he chooses to basically not have the truth come out. Uh, Tom Hanks then, obviously, like you say, has to live with the knowledge of his innocence. Um, yeah. And he basically chooses to leave this mortal realm, uh, John Coffey I'm talking about here, because the, the world as it, as it is in the 1930s, and to be honest, the world as it is now, yeah. is not ready for that level of black excellence. Yeah. And I, I saw it as that, to be honest. Um, maybe that's me putting a positive, because I, I, I like to try and be positive, apart from when we're talking about the bonfire of the vanities, because there's <laughs> yeah. no, nothing positive about that one. No. But I am so deeply affected by this movie. Yeah. Um, it's a, it is a tough watch. It is a very tough watch. Um, you, you need tissues to watch this movie. Yeah. A generous amount of Kleenex is required. But it's not so much from the emotion of the fact that this man is on death row or the fact that he, you know, eventually is passed, you know, his sentence is passed down. It's more to the fact that here you have uh, an individual with so much to give to the world. Yeah. And yet the colour of his skin is the reason why he is not allowed to, to, to give that to the world or that he's not permitted or that, you know, he, white people wouldn't accept his gift. Um, I also and- think, you know, we've had a lot of conversation around issues of colour and white supremacy. This is a theme throughout these movies. It keeps coming up, at least a few of them. And... One of the things I've been hearing from people of color, including some former guests, is, you know, it's not our job to educate you. Mm-hmm. It's not our job. Like, we already were carrying systemic generational trauma that is not just historical, but is ongoing. And then your response to us is, hey, How'd you get those wounds? Can you explain that to us? What happened here? We don't get it. 
right? And so there's a way in which, again, you could read this as his suffering is, is, is not just literally the color of his skin. He is suffering because he's a black man in the 1930s. That's 100% true. But he's also suffering because he's like a sin eater. He's suffering because he's absorbing the trauma of the people in the, the world around them. And his suffering uh, has made him a deeply empathetic character. He's an empath. He feels the pain of others because of the pain that he's gone through and because of this mystical gift that he has. And so you could almost make the argument that this is a movie that's advocating that it's not the responsibility of people of color just because they're acquainted with suffering and familiar with suffering because of what's been put onto them, because of the trauma that's been inflicted on them, it's not their responsibility to bear our cross. Mm-hmm. That, that trauma is our cross to bear, white people. Yeah. It's the system's cross to bear. It, it's not the victim's cross to bear. It's, it's the victimizers. And that this man is dying as a guilty man for crimes that literally other people have committed, and therefore his death is a crime. Yeah. And that's well, the point. It's, that, right? it's a crime that a white man has committed as well. Yes. And, it's a, and it is, as, as, as Hank's character says, it's a, I murdered, I killed one of God's miracles. It's not just a crime against a fellow human being, but because of black excellence and because of this, you know, metaphor of greatness that, you know, the mystical part that could be seen as metaphor for what uh, blackness brings to the world. Uh, it's a sin against God. It's a sin against the highest authority, right? And, um, you know, so when, when Tom Hanks is like, you know, I've done a lot of things in my life that I regret, but this is the first time in my life I've, I have feared hell. It's like, in the, in the logic of this world, right, I know I'm not trying to get into people's belief systems. We're just talking about the logic of this world. These people deserve hell for what they've done. Um, and I guess the movie kind of gets out of it a little bit because it's his wish to die. which But that also feels just like so fucking gnarly. Where it's like the world is such an awful place that this beautiful soul would just be like, I'd rather be dead than be here with you people. How terrible is that? Like it's, you know, and the first hour of this movie, I'm like, okay, this feels a little bit like Shawshank Light. You know, it feels like it's of a similar, you know, same. But the second two, the two additional hours, this is a three hour film, at least the cut I watched was. Hour two, hour three is incredible, powerful filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And when we get to that ultimate scene, well, first of all, when Michael Jeter's character is uh, executed, good Lord. Not knowing, again, having seen the movie, not knowing that that was going to happen, that was uh, excruciating to watch. Um, then to then watch. That where this ends is, 
and their faces, Barry Pepper and Tom Hanks. And I'm getting choked up even thinking about it. It's just like they sell that moment and that scene so well. Uh, it's, it somehow manages to, at least coming from me as a white guy, it somehow manages to communicate injustice yeah in a metaphorical way right the whole thing is this like horrific beautiful metaphor for white supremacy potentially and that's where i'm conflicted because having him be this very large simple and again though maybe maybe this is king or this is darabont taking that trope taking that racist trope that we've seen in Hollywood and in books forever and using it against itself. I, I just, I don't, I don't, at the end of the movie, I didn't know. And so even I was so deeply con, conflicted because I was so deeply moved by it and it could be read either way. And I'd really be interested to see what maybe a, a, a scholars or critics of color think about this film and maybe we'll, when this episode comes out we'll open that conversation up to some of our fellow uh, podcasters of color and see you know what's their perspective on this yeah i yeah. i would be really interested to hear that as well because i think it's really it's really easy as as two white people to say oh well this is what we think about yeah. this movie um but i i feel like um a person of color obviously has that, like you say, generational trauma yeah. of, of, you know, generations and generations of, um, you know, white supremacy and, you know, literally having their ancestors being, you know, ripped from families and, you yeah. know, put to work and having yeah. literally no say in their lives. And obviously this is set in the 1930s. Um, and this is before, um, um, what am I thinking? Like, um, you know, um, in America in the sixties. Oh, civil um, rights movement. Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry. My, my, I don't know what's happening with my brain today. It's going completely blank at every single opportunity, but I, I really feel like I want to know what people of color think about this movie, because I think we can say what we think. But yep. does it really matter what we think, you know? Right, exactly. Um, You're right. From, from my point of view, as, as, as I, I feel like as, as little as it matters in the grand scheme of things, um, this, for me, is a movie that I struggled to rewatch. This is a movie that I saw a long, long time ago. Mm. And it was one of those movies that deeply affected me emotionally. And I was basically, oh, I'm not going to watch that again because I cried like a baby at the end of that movie. Yeah. Um, I feel like watching it back then um, and watching it now, um, I feel like it means something different mm. now. It feels a lot different. And I don't know whether that's come with, you know, a little bit of age and a little bit of experience and a little bit more knowledge of what's out there in the real world and what's happened in the real world. Um, mm -hmm. and 
knowing a little bit more because as 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 you said earlier it's not the responsibility of people of color to tell us or inform us or educate us it's up to us as white people to educate ourselves yeah as to the atrocities of the past and yeah. what we can do as white people to make it better uh f- you know for future generations because we're not going to be able to make it better historically we, there's there's no chance we we that's that's done but what we can do is we can learn and we can improve and we can make it better now and we can make it better going forward. Yeah. And I think that that's down to us. That, that's down to every single white person yep. to realise what the previous generations, what our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, what they did. And because- how, those, how those things are in, embedded into our current system. Yeah. You know, overtly, covertly, doesn't matter that these injustices, this, this is, uh, especially the systematic racism, systematic. Yep. It's still so deeply embedded through generations, especially into like the criminal justice system in the United States and elsewhere. And obviously we see that with, you know, body camera footage and how many just, you know, innocent people of color are like asleep in bed and somebody's just with military guerrilla style force breaking into their house and shooting innocent people or how many young uh, black men have been shot down by police officers for either minor offenses or no offenses at all. When you know, for a fact, we, you can see it with the civil disobedience. You can see it with the insurrection we've had in the United States. There was an attempted coup where our capital was under siege by white people. And I think there was one fatality. You know, and it's and it, it it that would not if if a if a throng of people of color, if a throng especially of black men, broke into the, you know the capital, they wouldn't be getting three months of probation. We know that, right? We know these things are true. Uh, they're baked in, you know, yeah. to it to it's not just a matter of personal prejudice. It's a matter of so these things are baked in to our culture as a country because the because we have treated people of color, in particular black people, as subhuman, literally not human, since before this country even existed. There was, you know, this country is just a few over two hundred years old, but chattel slavery goes back over four hundred years. So before this actual country existed, slavery was already in place. And that is the foundation of our economy. That's the foundation of uh, what made this country strong. It's, it's, it's always been on the, the backs of uh, black people and people of color and immigrants. And with the rise in this country of, I know this is like really heavy for a goofy podcast, but the rise that we're seeing in the United States and around the world and other Western countries of white Christian nationalism is becoming extraordinarily violent and dangerous and uh, the, the, the calling of race riots and, and the murder and execution of people of color and the rise of neo-Nazism again, you know, and fascism and all these sorts of things. Like all of this is coming to a head culturally and across the nations and politically and socially. And you're exactly right. It's not, it is not the responsibility of the marginalized and the minority culture to um, who have been stripped of power, who have been stripped of the means of power, the means of justice. It's the responsibility of those in power 
to forego power for themselves, to put power back in the hands of, for equality, right? Like if, if, if you have seized everything for yourself, there cannot be equality until you give up your privilege. And, and, yeah. and uh, so that's what's really tough with this movie is because it is a white director and it is a white cast predominantly and it is a white writer and it is a white, right guy doing the, the adaptation. So I can't speak to what people of color feel about this movie. And I'm sure that there's a diversity of opinions. I'm sure it's not some monolith, but I can say that I was, the movie making here is excellent. I was surprised to, I'm going to be honest with you, M, knowing a little bit about what it was. I went in with my heels a little dug in of going, oh my God, here's another like, you know, here's another like racially tone deaf movie and it's going to schmaltz. I know that people tell me, Oh, you better, you're going to cry and this and that. Uh, and I, I was resistant to that. I don't want, I don't want to just have my emotions manipulated and me miss something that's maybe a little bit more malignant in the film, you know, a casual racism that's here. So I'm still conflicted about it. I don't know because I, I do have trepidation of as a white person, am I missing something here that is harmful to people of color, am I missing something here that that is not uh, not good? That is malignant. So I don't know. Uh, but I, you know, even the scene with Patricia Clarkson and him, where the, the brain tumor, and she's like, "I saw you, John Coffee, and we were together." And I was like, "That started welling me up because the performances in this movie are just out of this world, man." Yeah, they're outstanding. Michael Clark Duncan <laughs> is phenomenal. Phenomenal! Um, how, what a what a how loss. he didn't win an Oscar? I, yes. I, I, I don't know because he is he's everything. Without him, this movie does not work. Bingo! It, it's just yeah, he's incredible in this movie. And it's a tragic loss. Absolutely, hundred percent. I mean, yeah. what, what a what a guy he was. I mean, he was just this huge, imposing man. You know, physically imposing yeah. man. Um, you know, and. The fact that his character is so sweet and lovely and kind, despite yep. everything he's gone through, he still cares about people. Yep. And he just wants to help people. And that's all he wanted to do yep. for those girls. Yep. And you don't realize that until you kind of, you know, as the movie progresses, um, that he was actually trying to, to heal them. Save them, yeah. Yeah, yep. he was trying to bring them back to life. Um yep. And then he, what he says when they when he's found, and he says like, "Oh, I'm I was too late," yeah. or something like that. Um, it it you know it all makes sense. One of the things that really annoys me about this movie, um, and I feel like I know the answer, but I I want to put it out there anyway, is that we find out that um, Wild Bill, played by Sam Rockwell, uh, was working on the family farm at the time. Yeah, and that he's invited him for dinner. He has dinner with the family. And what really grates me is if you've got a stranger working on your property at the time of your daughter's disappearance, why was he not suspected? And I know, I think I know the answer. And I think I know the answer is because they were found with a black man. A black, vag a black vagrant. Yeah, a black traveler. Yeah, that but is the answer. Why? Why was he not suspected? I I don't, I don't know, but he seems, if he's working there and he's a stranger, surely he's the first suspect. You know, Em, unfortunately in American history, there's so many stories I, of I know, I know. that exact thing really playing out Yeah, and to this yeah. day. 
that it's, it's like, so frustrating though it's so frustrating it's horrific yeah I, absolutely it, it yeah. blows my mind that the person the white man who's clearly a suspect yeah is just not even considered at all and, cl- and clearly disturbed right yeah he's yeah. creepy as fuck isn't he let's yeah. be honest he's, and he ends up oh. in prison on death row yeah 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 uh, uh, yeah it's just what it's just do you those... make what do you make of the uh, Tom Hanks, his character of the choice to just do nothing? I am really conflicted about that because I feel like he has the knowledge. He knows that John Coffey is an innocent man. Yeah. And I feel like I'm, I'm very conflicted for a couple of reasons. Because if you know someone is innocent, then I feel like you should absolutely speak up and say that person is innocent. Yeah. Especially, especially if the person, I mean, obviously you should do it for any person, but especially for a person of colour, because I feel like for a person of colour, especially a black person, if they're accused of a crime, then unless they have someone who's willing to step up and say, I know that this person is innocent, then they automatically, because they are a person of colour, they will automatically be seen as the guilty party, the troublemaker, et cetera, et cetera. All of these racial stereotypes, blah, blah, yep. blah, all of that. Yep. But on the other hand, he knows that John Coffey is innocent because of this power, this mystical vision. There's, there's no other way of proving his innocence. And so I feel like if Paul Edgecombe had come out and said, no, we need to stop this, this guy is innocent and I, I have proof that he's innocent, mm. then what, what is his proof? His proof is that he saw a vision. Yeah. And it, yeah. Just, just it's it's a really frustrating part of the movie because all I want is for John Coffey to be freed yeah. throughout this whole movie. And yeah. it's devastating to me that his innocence is never given a chance to be proven. Ever. Yeah. Ever. Because of the situation that he's found in with these two girls. He's automatically the perpetrator. Yep. Because he's a black man. Yeah, and it goes into fears of like this big black man raping and killing young white virgins, right? Which is a racist trope all the way back to some of the earliest films. So, yeah, uh, yeah, it's tough stuff. And I think that one redeeming thing, I guess, in the story is that when we, by the time we flash forward to him as an older man, it's very clear from the way it's portrayed as the, the older man that he thinks he made the wrong decision. Yeah. He's tormented by it. You can tell he's he's tormented by it. Yeah, he definitely feels as if, no, even if I couldn't have got him off, and even if he didn't want me to, it was still wrong. Mm -hmm. Because his perception is not, hey, I've lived this long life, and what a a miracle. His perception is, this is God's curse. Yeah, he's basically, he's lived a life where he's seen everyone he knows die. Live Everyone and die. he loves is yep. gone. Yep. Um, and he's basically forced to carry on living, knowing yep. that he has committed a sin. B- 
because uh, he let it in. Tragedy. It's 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 it, 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 yeah, it's a tragedy. And it's almost like a morality tale because of the mm-hmm. inversion of it, right? He did not prevent the death of an innocent man, so his punishment as the guilty party is to live abnormally long. Mm-hmm. And so life becomes suffering. Life becomes a curse. And death for John Coffey is a, is a blessing. And so it's this, like, juxtaposition of, it. yeah, and it's, that's, again, where it's, like, the storytelling, the ideas are so masterful that even though I'm deeply conflicted because there is that fear of what am I as a white person missing about this that could be an egregious, you know, racial tropes that I'm not picking up on that are damaging and hurtful. Uh, I, I give this movie an 8.25 out of 10, and I'm adding it to the the short list. This is the best of the week. It's t- It's tough. Um, I don't know that I'll revisit this movie because yeah. it is long. It's, uh, it's long and it's tough. It's tough, man. It's so, yeah. it's so tough. And I, I, you know, we've, we've covered tough stuff on the show before. And, you know, my goal of the show is, is I try to walk a line between being deeply analytical and highly ridiculous, you know, but sometimes those two, you can't be both for certain films. And this is a movie Absolutely. because of the reality of the subject matter. There's not really a lot of room for like, ha ha here. Cause it's, this is, yeah. this is real You've life. You've got to go with the tone of what the yeah. movie's trying to say, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, but yeah. So, um, so it's, it's a little bit of a downer of the conclusion as we wrap yeah. up this episode, but if you've seen the movie, you know, it's it's heavy. It's a heavy film. Exactly. It is heavy. One of the things that I do really like about this movie, there, there is stuff to like about it. It's, it's. I mean, it, it's not all doom and gloom, but it is a lot of doom and gloom. Um, yeah. But one of the things I really like is Tom Hanks' character um, and the, the, the couple of other prison guards that are there. Uh, I'm not talking about the like corrupt prison guard because yeah. he's, he's not included in this. But I like the fact that all of those guards, that they are still compassionate. Um, yes. That they're not instantly completely racist arseholes. Yes. Um, right. That they actually get to know this man and yep. they start to like this man. They form relationships with this man. Um, and so when you do get to the end, <sighs> the, the emotion mm. and the connection, I mean... When he says there, they you know? hate me, they hate me, I can feel it or something like that. Oh, it's beautiful. And oh, bru- don't you'll get me started because yeah, yeah, and then Brutal, which is just mm. hilarious. His name is Brutal. I know. Uh his nickname. Uh when Brutal says, Yeah, but uh so whatever he says is something like think like you can feel what we think about you. Yeah. And he looks at him with these eyes are just like you know, full of they love this guy. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh. They love him, and it's it's and they're de- all the they are tragic all for it. Devastated by this, they're all, yeah. and just when he says to him like you're you're a good man, you know, and he just starts because he's like like they're all like decent people, which I, I agree with you, except for the one guy who's just like an absolute piece of shit. But the the guards, the, the, the stereotypical way to do this is like they're all kind of bastards, but they're not really. They even tell a guy. You know, Michael Jeter's character is like a murderer, serial killer, rapist. They tell him they're going to send his mouse to Mouseville. <laughs> you know, no. there's a humanity oh, no. there where, where it's like, because they're, because they work in the green mile, on the green mile, 
and because they're faced with the death of these people, uh, it's like at a certain point, like, like when he dies and the guy's like, you know, talking shit about him, he's like, he, that man paid his price. It's over. Right. Yeah. He did what he did, but he paid his price. Um, Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it's just, you do see decency in, in these characters, Barry Pepper and, uh, Jeff DeMont, DeMond and all of these characters, you see so much humanity in, in them yeah. that it really, it, it keeps the movie from being like, like just so heavy. You can't watch it. And there is yeah. humor in it and there is funniness in it and there is levity in it. And, and it, but man, it's, it just ends on a really, it ends on a, it, it's, 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 there's multiple moments of just injustice and really, you know, he doesn't wet that sponge. Oh, it's horrendous. It's Absolutely horrendous. horrendous. And it's unflinching and it goes on forever. Yeah. It's oh. horrible. Yeah. So oh. where, what would you score this? Where does it rank for you? So I gave this an 8.5 out of 10. Uh, and obviously the subject matter is, quite difficult to watch but I, I feel like this is a movie that people should watch yeah um it is very long i mean this is three plus hours um it is incredibly long um but i feel like it deserves that length if you know what i mean nothing there's no fat on this movie to trim really uh from my point of view i feel like you need that character building you need to get to know these people and especially mm. you need to get to know john coffee yeah because without getting to know him, this movie, like I say, this movie does not work without Michael Clark Duncan. No. So he, he is the MVP of this movie. Absolutely. Um, so I put this, because obviously I've already told you what my number one is. Yeah. <laughs> so this is my number two. Yeah. And I will say that I spent a lot of time, at one point the Green Mile was at the top, because I was like, this is technically the better movie. Yeah. It, it's a more important movie. It's the movie that people should watch. And then I, I guess I kind of thought to myself, I thought, well, Jason will probably have it at number one. <laughs> because, yeah. because Jason knows what he's talking about. And he's like, <laughs> he's not incredibly biased. And he's, you know, actually good at reviewing movies. So, um, so yeah, it fluctuated for a little bit. And then when I did my scores, I was like, no, I, I like that thing you do more. And yeah. I know it doesn't mean as much, and I get that. And I know people are probably going to come for me, but you've got to go with your gut on these things. And and my gut said number two. So, but it's still a fantastic movie. Uh, it, emotionally devastating, um, and haunting, and but also beautiful. Yeah. As well. Yeah, there is beauty in it for sure. And there was a while where I thought Joe versus Volcano was going to be best of the week. So. You know, I, I maybe I don't know as much as you're you're building me up to. I may be a good film <laughs> reviewer, but I don't build dioramas verbally. So there's that. <laughs> this is true. Not many people do. I am the only one. All right, it's time for a recap. Coming in dead last for me is the Bonfire of the Vanities. Two out of ten. Movie stinks. Coming at number four, much to the chagrin of my guest, M is that thing you do. Coming at number three, well, that was the 7.5. Coming at number three is Joe versus the Volcano with a 7.9. Just beating out at my number two is You've Got Mail, my favorite rom-com of all time, and sitting in the number one spot with deep 
conflict inside of my soul uh, is the Green Mile, which is an 8.25 out of 10. But I would like to hear, as as M would as well, what uh, reviewers and uh, viewers of color uh, think about this movie. Uh, tell us what we've missed. So, M, what is your recap? So, my number five with two out of ten is The Bonfire of the Vanities, because it's crap. Yeah. Uh, number four is uh, Joe versus the Volcano with six out of five. Uh, number three, you've got Mail with seven and... I oh, can't even say words. 7.5. Uh, number two, The Green Mile with 8.5. And my number one is That Thing You Do, which is a nine out of ten from me because it's wonderful and brilliant and uplifting. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is your recommendation of the week? Of the five films we watched, which one <laughs> would you recommend? I have to recommend That Thing You Do because... I feel like not a lot of people listening will have seen it. And for that reason, it's absolutely 100% worth your time and you should see it. Same reasoning, but for Joe versus the Volcano. Oh, <laughs> I'm not surprised, actually, considering our conversation. I'm really not surprised. On our next episode, we'll be ranking The Muppet Movie, starting with The Muppet Movie, The Great Muppet Caper, The Muppets Take Manhattan, Muppet Treasure Island and Muppets from Space. Man, we've had a lengthy conversation here as usual. Oh, so lengthy. It's been amazing though. I, I, I hope you enjoy the conversation. I know you say you're not a film critic, you're not a film reviewer. As of late, people have started to use the term film critic when they refer to me. So uh, I guess that puts me in that category. I don't use it for myself, but other people have started using it, including real film critics. So I like the fact that if you're not a film critic, then we get two different points of view. We get the, the film diorama point of view, and we get the film critic point of view, I guess. Uh, and that's what the show's all about. It's all about differing points of view about movies. Sometimes we agree, sometimes we don't agree, but it, the, the meat of it's in the conversation. And I think we had, hopefully, our audience agrees, excellent conversation here today. Hope you enjoyed it. I have absolutely enjoyed it. I think this has been a really valuable conversation. I, I certainly do agree with you. I would love to hear what uh, people of colour think about the Green Mile. I'd also like to hear if any people of colour have seen Bonfire of the Vanities. Oh, um, God. I mean, I hope they haven't. But, <laughs> um, yeah. Oh. Um, just, yeah, that that is a thing. Um, I mean, please don't go and watch it. Don't go out no. of your way to watch no. that movie, please. No. Um, but, yeah, absolutely the Green Mile. Um, and this has just been a really interesting conversation in general, talking about, let's be honest, these are the Tom Hanks movies that generally don't really get talked about so yep. often from the 90s because yep. 90s Tom Hanks... He had a lot of big hits yeah. in the 90s. Um, so I really like that we've actually focused on maybe some of his lesser well-known stuff, um, which, it, I mean, I, I certainly think it's a valuable discussion to have. Um, and, yeah, I've had a wonderful time with a very lengthy conversation that we've had. <laughs> um, but I, I've had a wonderful time talking to you um, about all things Tom Hanks because – Let's be honest, he's wonderful. Why Why would you not want to talk about everyone's favorite uncle, Tom Hanks? Where can we find you? How can we support you? Where's your Patreon? Sell, sell, sell. <laughs> 
Well, okay. So, uh, yeah, I like to think I'm everyone's favourite general female person. person. <laughs> uh, general female relative, whether that yeah. be your sister, daughter, aunt, not grandma. <laughs> Let me be perfectly clear, not grandma. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, gen- general favourite female relative on Twitter, that's me. Um, you can find me and my podcast. It's called Verbal Diorama. And basically, as I've already said, it is uh, the podcast all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. So basically, every episode I take a movie and I talk about how that movie came to be. Uh, Mm. General production history, casting history, basically anything to do with the history and the legacy. Um, Because let's be honest, movies are tough to make. And I think it's worth celebrating the fact that movies exist apart from Bonfire at the Vanities, which we're never going to celebrate ever. Um, <laughs> this is going to be a recurring joke now. Yeah. Every single time yeah. something terrible happens in the world, we can say, well, that's the Bonfire of the Vanities. Um, that is just going to be the, the reference yeah. for everything shit that happens. Um, if you wish to find me, you can do so. Um, my website is verbaldiorama.com, super easy. And um, I am on social media. You can come and talk to me. Talk to me about that thing you do, please, because I would love to talk about that movie more. Um, you can find me at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And yeah, I absolutely welcome people. Talk to me about anything we've talked about other than you know what. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, I have one final question for you. Of sure. all of the episodes that you've done, <laughs> what is the best episode that is the least listen to in your mind that you say because we all know the hits toy story this this and that whatever whatever but there's an episode every podcaster has one where you worked your ass off you got done with it it came together great you look it's funny it's charming it's insightful whatever whatever for whatever reason it may have been okay but it didn't exceed uh expectations what is that episode for you what's an underrated verbal diorama Oh, gosh. Okay. Let me... <laughs> I'm just going to have to get my phone out. Um, That's a tough question for a podcast, too, because you really forget is. what you've done. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And when you've done, you know, I'm, I'm coming up to... I'll be coming up to 150 episodes in the next, yeah. you know, month or so. So, you know, there, there's quite a lot of episodes there. And obviously, you've also got to bear in mind the fact that when you start out with a podcast, you, your listener base isn't that big. Yeah, And as, as you grow, your listen, listener base gets slightly larger. But the problem with that is that some of the older episodes kind of get forgotten about because yeah. yep. people don't tend to go back and listen to the older stuff. Although I have been quite impressed with some, some of the more recent listeners I've got. Um, bless them, they've actually been going back through the back catalogue. Isn't that so wonderful? They'll, they'll, they'll send me messages and they'll be like, I'm just listening to episode 20 at the moment. And I'm like, That's oh wonderful. my God, I bet it sounds terrible. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it's wonderful obviously- <laughs> and scary when it happens because you're like, those are uh, shit. Uh, but thanks for listening. <laughs> yeah, it's so it's it's always like tinged with a little bit of regret because you're yeah. like, oh, I wish I had that equipment that I've yes. got now back then. Yeah. Um, because although I feel like the content is good, the I think the audio is a bit crappy. I'll be completely honest. Um, so kind of going back, sort of through the back catalogue. Um, because obviously there were some episodes that did quite well, but I don't want to go back too far because, because <laughs> let's be honest, some of it's quite ropey. Um, I think, 
Oh, this is a really tough question. I don't want to be here all day, obviously, flipping through my phone and trying to trying to find one. What's um, what? Just what? What's one that's near and dear to your heart that it, it may have done good, but it didn't. It did. You feel like it deserves better. Okay, so in that case, I think what I'll probably go for is there was a movie that came out in the early two thousands. And it was a very effective satire of, of actually the uh, pop industry, speaking of that thing you do. And it did quite badly when it came out. People didn't get it. They didn't understand the references. They didn't understand the satire. Josie um, and the Pussycats. Absolutely, Josie and the Pussycats. Um, that is episode 87. Okay. Um, I, I'm very fond of that episode. It did okay, but... Excuse me. But I feel like... Um, <coughs> excuse me again but i feel like because it's a movie that not many people have seen yeah. and because obviously it's based on a a cartoon um i think a lot of people tend to be put off of adaptations especially yep. of cartoon series like that unless it's like an established name like scooby-doo for example or the flintstones yeah. they might be a little bit put off but it's such a smart movie and i absolutely adore it and i think it only gets better with age as well mm, yeah. um and so, yeah, uh, if, I, if I could recommend anyone, it would be Josie and the Pussycats. Find all of her links, all that sort of stuff in the show notes down below. And of course, until next time, binge on. Binge on.